Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. For our final show of season three, I'm honored to have my friend Francis Pouliot join me for a discussion. Francis is the founder and CEO of Bull Bitcoin, a popular non-custodial Bitcoin exchange and payment service in Canada. Francis has been heavily involved in the Bitcoin industry since 2013, and in that time has accrued a wealth of knowledge and experience, which in addition to his uniquely principled approach to things, has made him a popular and respected voice in the Bitcoin space. Personally, I've always appreciated his reverence for truth, his dedication to doing what he believes to be right, and the ideas, arguments, and products which have emerged from that approach, including his company, Bull Bitcoin, which, full disclosure, I'm a happy customer of. Enjoy. Francis, how are you? We got this nailed down finally. I'm doing great. Thanks, John. <laughs> uh, so we were just chatting a little bit before uh, we got going, and I, I want to pick up on on some of the things we were discussing. But um, one of the motivations why I wanted the, the the show thus far, we've been focusing on people that have built like medium to large uh, businesses in the Bitcoin only space, um, and. I wanted, I think it's fitting that you are uh, the last episode of season three because I've always felt that you, I want to be careful how I say this, but you've built, it seems to me that you've adhered to certain ethics or Bitcoin principles in building a business and as a result of that have had to make certain trade-offs more so than the vast majority of your peers in the space. And I've always appreciated that about what you do. And I know many others have as well. So I wanted to, you know, I thought it was fitting that we'd have you on for the last show of the season. But just to give everyone who may not be familiar with you some context, can you just kind of, I mean, I know you've got a long and storied history in the space, but maybe like a little bit of background on how you got in and then a little bit of background on Bull and then we'll, we'll find our way after that. Sure, sure, thanks. I got into Bitcoin as a public policy advocate as a public relations person really early on in, in 2013. There was a group of OG Bitcoiners in Montreal that created a, an organization and a physical space called the Bitcoin Embassy. The goal of the Bitcoin Embassy was for entrepreneurs, devs, hobbyists to come together, um, join a meetup, work in a common co-working space and educate the public about Bitcoin. And one of the first things that we did was to build a Bitcoin ATM to, to open a Bitcoin ATM at the Bitcoin embassy for people to come and buy Bitcoin with cash. And I ended up being the person that ran essentially the, the Bitcoin ATM, the, the Bitcoin trading side, because I was interfacing with the public. So my job from kind of like a nine to five, was I would go to the office, I would sit at a an information kiosk and people would walk in, ask about Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin. And since Bitcoin ATMs are non-custodial, you would just put the cash in and it sends the Bitcoin out to whatever wallet you have. My job effectively became to set people up with wallets and help onboard them in a non-custodial way to Bitcoin. Um, so I did that for, for a few years. Eventually, People would come into the Bitcoin embassy from first, it was from all over Canada because it was seen as a place where 
someone would hold your hand into setting up your own Bitcoin wallet, showing you how to do a backup and onboard you onto Bitcoin the right way. And then people started to even flying from the US, you know, people would come in from New York and drive, you know, six, seven hours to come to Montreal to benefit from the service of having someone help you set yourself up with a wallet and, and purchase Bitcoin with cash. So we decided um, to transform our physical business into an online business where instead of driving to the office and, and deposit cash, you would be able to fund an account with, uh, with, uh, with a bank transfer, essentially. So that's kind of like how I started really doing peer-to-peer, -peer, kind of like cash-based Bitcoin ATM style trading. And um, Bull started from there. And then one of my friends was running a payment company called Bills. Bills allows Canadians to pay their, their bills with Bitcoin. Essentially how that works is you send Bitcoin to the app, the app converts them to fiat and then pays out to a third party. So the main difference from like a traditional exchange is traditional exchange, you would typically wire the money back into your bank account, whereas Bills would just pay a third party that is not you, the sender of the Bitcoin directly. And um, Bills was really fascinating and, and a really cool use case because it had been around since 2013. And then whenever someone asked me, what can you do with Bitcoin? You know, okay, sure, I'm going to buy Bitcoin. Like, what can I spend my Bitcoins on? And then I would always reply, since, since I got into Bitcoin, my, my reply was always, well, you can pay all your bills with Bitcoin with this app called Bills. That includes credit cards and phone bills and electric bills and so on and so forth, your rent. And then he decided to close down bills in, in 2015 um, to, to, just for another venture. Uh, it was a one-man operation. It was very hard to, to, to operate um, for him. And I, I thought to myself, like, we can't let bills die because like, that's the one use case. You know, that's, that's the, um, the example that I use for, for showing the potential of um, Bitcoin as a, as a means of payment. So I, I acquired bills from, from my friend and um, began a process of, of revamping the technology. So at the same time as I was launching what is now today Bull Bitcoin, the exchange where people can send bank transfers and purchase Bitcoin in a non-custodial way, I also acquired this bill um, payment processing startup. And uh, yeah, that was in 2015, around the summer 2015, at the absolute bottom of the bear market. And uh, <laughs> um, it's a self... It's a self-funded startup, um, so the absolute bottom of a bear market is the absolute worst time to, you know, launch a a, a startup uh, without VC backing because you have to spend your 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 Bitcoin savings on salaries and on technology costs and and all of that. Um, so I did not want to have investors. Uh, Bull Bitcoin still does not have investors today, which uh, which is partly what allows me as you mentioned before, to make some, some trade-offs that are potentially financially um, impacting the business, you know, trade-offs being not being custodial and not selling or being involved with uh, shit coins or not being involved with yield or lending or, and all those kinds of practices. Um, so we were financed and we are financed by our operational revenue since the beginning. Um, I was lucky enough to have a, a good base of customers when I launched, when we launched Bills and when I launched Bull Bitcoin in 2015, I already had a large base of, you know, thousands of customers that were my previous customers at the Bitcoin embassy that were doing, you know, these cash trades. Um, so I was able to launch 
you know, with a rat rapidly with, with operating revenue and very, very low costs. Um, so I've been doing that for, for about eight years. And, um, in terms of, uh, the, the foundational principles of the business, um, there's three. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, sometimes I think of bull Bitcoin is, uh, is, is almost an advocacy group as much as it is a business. And we had three core principles and the, the business does not exist without these principles. It has no reason to exist. The first one is Bitcoin maximalism. So I don't need to, I think, go into what that is for, for the audience. Um, but it, it was based upon the idea that it's not only inevitable, but it's a good thing. So we should strive to encourage it, right? It, need, it needs to, the idea of Bitcoin maximalism needs to go mainstream faster. It's not just an economic inevitability, you know, like when, when Bitcoin imperative. maximalism kind of... Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, the Pierre Rochard, Bitstein kind of argument in 2014 when they kind of came out with it was that it's it's just it's just inevitable and my thinking was it's also a good thing uh i believe that the exchange of one currency for another is an inherently destructive act so let's let's try to remove that that destructive act from the economy the the second aspect of it was um cypherpunk principles so in the cypherpunk principle category you can include like self-custody. You can be a Bitcoin maximalist and not believe in self-custody, you know, you, and you can have, you can be a, a perfectly good maximalist and have a, a custodial uh, business. You know, Swan is a, is a great example of that. It's, it's hard to find a more hardcore Bitcoin maximalist than Corey, but, you know, it's, his exchange is still custodial. Um, and uh, the cypherpunk ethos also involves building open source infrastructure. So uh, we can get into that a little bit, but the the core of the bull bitcoin business is actually an open source project called cypher mm. without cypher there is no bull bitcoin and um i sometimes joke with my devs that you know the reason why we built bull bitcoin is to finance cypher to to make that project um viable because uh, nobody nobody would invest in you know something like cypher there's no revenue model behind it you know it's kind of similar in concept to stuff like btc pay server so the, uh, the idea of building this open source infrastructure that anybody could use and that would allow other businesses to follow the same model is, is a core component. The bull Bitcoin existed prior to the SegWit fork wars, but we had been a non-custodial exchange mostly by... Just, just by habit, I would say, because I, we were operating at a Bitcoin ATM. That's not custodial. I was operating in an OTC desk, a uh, physical OTC desk. That's not custodial. We were operating the the bill payment business, which was non custodial. So when we launched Bitcoin, I mean, being non custodial is kind of like all I knew. Um, and we were not at the time. In the re really early beginning, using something like CypherNode, then the the fork wars happened, and I really started to focus on the idea of running your own node and using that node to receive and send payments. It's not enough to just run your own node mm -hmm. if it's not being used in an economically meaningful and purposeful sense. So 
if you're running a node on Umbrel, but you're using a mobile wallet, like Blue, Blue Wallet, for example, connected to Blue Wallet's Electrum servers to send and receive Bitcoin payments, then you're not actually using your own node. Your own node is, is in fact, useless, completely useless. And I realized that Bull Bitcoin was not running its own node because at the time of the SegWit wars, Bull Bitcoin's position was to follow the user-activated soft fork um, software and, uh, and, and fork of Bitcoin. But our node and hot wallet providers were BitGo at the time and another uh, block explorer called BlockCypher. So we were using these two pieces of software to receive Bitcoins from clients and to send Bitcoins to clients. And these two entities did not want to follow the user activated soft fork. So as a business, I was not able to follow the version of Bitcoin that I wanted to because I was depending on third parties. And that was absolutely unacceptable. So when, when this whole episode of Bitcoin history unfolded, I scrambled, I hired someone and we built our own block explorer and we then built CypherNode to be able to uh, be able to send and receive Bitcoins from clients. So CypherNode is a self-hosted alternative to a hosted wallet provider. Um, that was very, very important to me because uh, I've, I've done a few talks on this topic. It's a very niche topic, but Bitcoin is centralized significantly because many people use exchanges to send and receive their Bitcoins. And that's, that's something that we're all aware of. But what people are not that aware of is that the exchanges themselves use another layer of custodians to hold their Bitcoins and by proxy their clients' Bitcoins. So imagine, for example, you have, you know, you have a million Bitcoin users. I, we, I know there's more, but just for the sake of the you have a million Bitcoin users. They're using like a thousand exchanges. But these thousand exchanges are using 10 node and wallet providers. So essentially you have 10 entities that are sending and receiving coins on behalf of a million people instead of a thousand. If it, if it was a thousand, Bitcoin would still be very centralized, but not catastrophically so because a user could move between one exchange and the other and kind of like vote with their feet. But if all of the exchanges are using the same backend providers, um, you cannot do that. So well, let's, let, you know, Coinbase I mean, is a let, good example. Yeah, let's just be specific here. So Coinbase is one that they service a shitload of companies in the space, right? Yeah. Prime Trust, yeah. another. Silvergate, yeah. another, right? Yeah. These, these are the main yeah. ones that yeah. pretty much everybody plugs into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another one is is BitGo. Not not uh, not very well known by the public, but it's a, it's a huge infrastructure component. Um, and uh, on top of my head, these are these are the main four. I, I would say there's there's about there's about eight. To ten that are that are that are controlling like ninety percent of the exchange market. Very few exchanges run their own infrastructure. The only two other exchanges that I know of that are significant that people know about are Cash App and River. Um, and and both these exchanges should be highly commended. Uh, Cash App built a software project called um, LDK Lightning Development Kit, uh, and uh, River has their own their own custom stuff. There's an exchange in, in Africa called Bitnob that I know yeah. did something similar to what we did with CypherNode, but very, very few um, have done that because it's it's quite difficult to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that that became a, a huge 
part of our identity. It's okay. So we, as a business, will embody the ethos of the end Bitcoin user. So the end Bitcoin user should have its own keys, run its run its own nodes. We as a business should do the same. And the the third kind of like foundational value of bull Bitcoin is was to have skin in the game. At the time, I was a huge fan of Nassim Taleb. His reading his books was a was a revelation for me. Um, I still am actually a huge fan of Nassim Taleb's books. Um, maybe not the the online persona that that we know today. Um, but skin in the game for me meant that okay, so as a as the founder of the business, I need to be extremely heavily invested. So the only investor in bull Bitcoin is myself. Um, the business is preaching Bitcoin maximalism and a a kind of like get on zero almost mindset where we want to abolish fiat currency. So um, we don't hold our profits in uh, in in dollars. Maybe not the wisest decision <laughs> to do in bear all markets. the time, um, but we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, we do hold um, all of our profits in Bitcoin, and we don't do anything that we we don't preach anything that we don't do ourselves. So uh, we hold Bitcoin, we DCA, we don't trade in shit coins, and we un- we run our own nodes, run our own keys. Um, we don't offer any product that we we don't use ourselves so so yeah that's that's the foundational story of bull bitcoin all right there's a lot there i'm going to come back to some of it but before i do just to get one more piece of the puzzle i i'm, I'm sure i must have asked asked you this before but what was it that initially drew you to bitcoin in the first place even before like ideologically i mean what was it that drew you to you know being interested in bitcoin yeah, that's a great question. Or economically, so in, uh, there's no 20... ideology attached. You yeah, know, but I presume there is. So, so I was I was a, a lib- I was a libertarian, classic libertarian, um, since my years in college, where I was fortunate enough to study under Austrian economics professors at the University of King's College in London. I did not intend to have that path. Uh, I did not choose this program or these professors or this university, but it just turned out that. It was a heavily libertarian and Austrian economic focused university. And uh, I discovered in college, in university rather, um, you know, Murray Rothbard, Hayek and Mises specifically, I would read their, their teachings. Uh, one specifically was uh, one writing that changed my life, I would say is Hayek's, uh, there was two, Hayek's use of uh, knowledge in society and Hayek's uh, Nobel Prize acceptance speech that I studied and, and it, a lot of things clicked in my head about how I viewed how the world worked. I had also just read Atlas Shrugged just before getting into college. So I had kind of like a, uh, and I was, I was watching Dr. Ron Paul on, on, on YouTube. He was running for president. That was like 2008, nine or 10 or something like that. So, so I became very much passionate about the libertarian ideas and it was through libertarian politics and libertarian circles that I was introduced to Bitcoin by, um, by, a, by a friend who was an anarcho-capitalist. And um, when we met, he described to me how the incre- we were discussing about my, my, my role as a libertarian policy writer. So I was actually working for an economics think tank and my job was to vulgarize libertarian free market capitalist ideas to the public to and to write policy briefs. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I would, for example, write. Oh, vulgarize means like to dumb down, right? So I would, for example, be writing um, op-eds in the newspapers. I would be writing like four-page reports. I would be um, also being like a research assistant for these economics that were trying to push the idea of free market economics within Quebec and Canada specifically. And um, they they were fans of the research institute I was working at. And I had become disillusioned with the effect that we were having on the on on the policy on the relative policy I, I became disillusioned in the fact that our ideas are not taking hold at all so the libertarian movement does not have any traction politically every time you 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 install new regulation new rules it works like a ratchet you can't go back right so you 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 regulate you create an institute you nationalize a sector of society it's it's almost never liberalized you know we we don't we don't see that happening ever um and um my friend was explaining to me how bitcoin would just essentially end the state by starving it by bankrupting it i had no idea about monetary policy at the time even if i had studied um you know austrian economics in uh, in university we don't we didn't actually learn or 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 I don't remember learning about monetary policy at all. And um, the idea that we could defund the state and prevent the state from actually having the resources to, to put these policies in place, and that being the only way to reverse the, the ratchet of the growing Leviathan uh, was a very powerful idea. At, also, at the same time, I became a big fan of Julian Assange, and uh, WikiLeaks. So I was kind of a geek. I was I was into you know torrenting and uh, and kind of like alternative. I was early in the kind of like meme or meme culture and kind of the 4chan-ish culture. And um, the Julian Assange uh, being censored by PayPal was a huge kind of like light bulb that hit my head. So when WikiLeaks started to accept Bitcoin donations uh, somewhere in I don't know if it was 2013 or 2012 or. I learned about it in 2013, early 2013, um, a light bulb hit in my head. And I was already wor- worried about the, um, the the disappearance of cash also. So I was I was very, very worried about financial censorship. I actually bought like the domain legalizedcash.com before I got into Bitcoin. I was I was already thinking about, um, the, you know, what would end up being known as CBDCs today, like government money. Um, so the first aspect was defunding the state. That was my number one reason to be into Bitcoin. The second aspect was uh, censorship resistance. Um, As I started to operate this Bitcoin kiosk, this help desk where people would come to buy and sell Bitcoin and ask questions about Bitcoin, from a philosophical perspective, when you help someone install a Bitcoin wallet and you empower them to take control of their money and you empower them to have full property right over their money, um, it's there's there, there's a very very strong kind of almost spiritual aspect to freeing someone. You know, you give them the tools to free themselves. I think that was something that kept me going a lot. Um, and that that got because remember when I got into Bitcoin like professionally, it was just before the bull market of 2013. So I had to like deal with two years of bear market. You know, from the top of 2013 all the way to 2015. 
So my first professional experience in Bitcoin was like two years of the price of Bitcoin going down and like, you know, the value of my money going down. Um, so I guess that's how I, that's how I was hanging on there by, by the act of helping people install the wallet and freeing themselves. I was a very involved, uh, very interested in the idea of property rights uh, being inherently enforced by Bitcoin as opposed to being um, enforced by, by a government and, you know, the light clicks in your head when you're thinking intellectually about libertarianism that you cannot have libertarianism if you don't have a night watchman state at the very least that protects your property rights mm -hmm. right um with some kind of monopoly on violence like a police force uh or courts or contracts or so on and so forth um but you know with bitcoin it's like oh wow well you know the property right is is determined by by math, essentially by knowledge of a specific number. Yeah. Um, very, very intellectually uh, stimulating for someone that just came out of university and is like, you know, thinking, writing essays about property rights and that kind of stuff. And uh, another episode that was, that was very um, foundational for me was the, uh, the financial censorship of a website called Backpage. So few Bitcoiners are aware of the Backpage episode. It's definitely important to me personally and to a lot of the Bitcoin OGs as well. So, so Backpage was a website that allowed escorts, essentially, like sex professionals, to advertise their services online. And uh, these escorts would, would pay to have their ads posted on a website and you know their clients could find them or whatever. It was kind of like an escort directory in, in a sense. And that website got shut down. I oh, know, sorry, um, PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, and all the payment processors decided to um, to financially censor this website so that they would drop their, their payment uh, partnerships. And Backpage was left with only one method of payment that hadn't censored them, and that was Bitcoin. So all of the Backpage users had to turn to Bitcoin in order to place their ads on the website. And then at the Bitcoin embassy, we were flooded by a swarm of sex professionals <laughs> that were looking to learn more about Bitcoin and how it will work. And then um, it was the absolute only way that they could continue um, doing their ads. I mean, I'm not a, I don't encourage that kind of activity. Uh, I, I don't think it's very it's very moral or good, but whatever, you know. At the time, I was much more libertarian and like open-minded about these things. Um, but it was just the most powerful thing that like they needed, these people needed Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the only way for them to make these payments. That site was being heavily censored by the US Marshals, by all sorts of entities. And they just could not shut down the Bitcoin component of the website. That was that was incredibly powerful. And then um, you know I would help them set up these these Bitcoin wallets, and uh, you would see these like low like unprivileged, the most destitute kind of people in society. Um, a lot of a lot of you know like trans Asian, uh, you know weird, <laughs> uh, marginalized, heavily marginalized people. Um, just you explain to them like nobody can take this money away from you. Okay, so you have your wallet. Okay, so you can pay your ads with it, but you know you can also hold your wealth in this in this and 
And, uh, you know, presumably a lot of them had like pimps or something, people that were like taking their money away from them or mm -hmm. their bank accounts were being shut down or whatever it is that they were. They were in abusive relationships uh, that, that had a financial abuse component to it or something like that. And then you're, you're explaining to these very destitute, marginalized people, like, nobody can take this money away from you. And yes, you can use this to pay for your online ads. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop you. Uh, very, very powerful stuff. So that's kind of like the part of the origin story. So yeah, it was just to make the very long story short, it was the anarcho-capitalist completely end the state and fiat um, radical component of Bitcoin that got me uh, that got me interested. I, I definitely did not come at it from a technology standpoint. And in fact, I didn't even come at it from a sound money perspective. I did not fully understand sound money until at least a year after I got into Bitcoin, a year and a half. So like 2014, mid-2014, I, I started to listen a lot more to guys like Mike Maloney, people that were like gold bugs and, and talking about, you know, the, the gold standard and, uh, but it, it, it was really, for me, it was like anti-censorship and, and, and the government that got me into Bitcoin in the first place. Was it when the penny dropped, was it, did you know this was going to be your career? You know, cause some people kind of trickle in and they're not sure how, if they go all in or not, but like, it sounds like it was pretty full on from the beginning for you. Yeah, it was flown from the beginning. Um, there's there's this one guy that got me into Bitcoin. Uh, I don't I, I don't want to name drop him. He he knows he knows who he is. He's a good friend of mine. Um, we're we're still very good friends. After about two or three meetings, um, he told me something along the lines of, and and he he was the smartest person that I had met at the time in real life. I thought I was smart compared to like my peers, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but this guy was just like math genius, chess master, classical pianist, software engineer working for a Swiss bank. And, uh, you know, he, he was one of those uh, very, very accomplished people that when, when you start to get to know the guy, you're like, I want to impress him. <laughs> you know, so like, who is this guy? <laughs> and he, he just told me, I remember talking to him about how I, I don't understand how mining works and it was very confusing. And, um, and he told me just, just, it doesn't matter if you don't understand Bitcoin, just trust me. Like you are made for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is made for you. I can see it in you. Just quit your job and come work for me. Like you will not regret it. Wow. And he was just telling me, trust me. Like, how did, trust you, meet, me. How did like, you meet this I, person? I can... So I met him through a conservative political uh, event. So he was involved in the Quebec conservative movement um, way, way back in the day. And he actually was trying to orange pill the Quebec conservative party, uh, which at the time my father was the, the leader of the party. And uh, he, you know, he took us to dinner um, with a bunch of Bitcoin OGs and they were telling us, you guys need to accept Bitcoin donations. Uh, <laughs> I really, really, uh, that was like, you know, January, 2013. Um, so, uh, and he, his idea, their idea was like, we can, they were telling us Bitcoin's going to go to like $10,000. Bitcoin was like, I don't know, like 50 bucks at the time. Like it's going to go to $10,000 one day. So if you buy a bunch of Bitcoins now, you're going to have a war chest and you can win elections with that war chest, you know, but you know, <laughs> you know, Nobody political listens. donations are kind of tricky. <laughs> like you can't. Yeah, no, we didn't. Well, I mean, we were both, we were both, me and my dad were at that meeting and we were both uh, very f favorable to Bitcoin um, at that moment. It was just like, uh, you know, overwhelming. Like, yeah. what the fuck is this? You know, we don't know what to do. I mean, it, 
something along the lines of like we really like the idea guys but it's just like it's just not our thing you yeah. know it's just not what a gangster move into, for him you know, to see the fire in yeah. you and be like look yeah. whatever the like the party doing it who gives a shit you need to commit yourself to this like i'm telling you you yeah. you need yeah, to yeah. do it yeah, I had the be I, I got very lucky. I had the best mentors. I had I had him and and a few other guys that were hardcore Bitcoin OGs. Um, for just to give you an example, um, so I had very very uh, little technology knowledge, and the first thing that he told me when I joined the Bitcoin embassy is like, okay, you, this is a Bitcoin miner. You need to make this work. And at the time, like running a Bitcoin miner was very hard. Like you had to run CG miner on your laptop. You had to do a bunch of stuff. I had no idea how, you know, any, no knowledge of mechanics or electricity, you know, um, and they're like, your first task is to make this miner work. I'm like, don't come back to us until the miner is working and mining um, and you're earning Bitcoins. The first thing they told me. And then um, they booked me, uh, they booked me on a TED talk um, and I had to explain how Bitcoin worked and I had no idea how Bitcoin worked. It's like, well, you have like a month and a half to learn how Bitcoin works and then you're giving a TED talk. So these were very, very good mentors. And, uh, I was also lucky that they they did a lot of mistakes, a lot of the classic Bitcoin mistakes. Like one of my mentors, he got rug pulled on Mongox, obviously, but also on um, Bitcoinica and Pirate Forty, which were the big big Bitcoin um, like exchange rug pulls. And these guys lost like life changing amounts of coins. Not even life changing, like just just unfathomable you know like thousands of bitcoins you know um they also invested in uh bitcoin mining projects that ended up being you know whatever it is <laughs> were they scams were they ponzi schemes right. were they were they hype um who knows but um so uh i was very very skeptical of bitcoin exchanges like holding my i never held my coins on exchanges because i saw these guys lose a you know life-changing amount of money um based based on that um i also saw these guys spend a lot of their money on the bitcoin embassy like they spent a lot of their bitcoins on on this project and then uh, regretting it later on as the price of bitcoin went up so it's like okay that's a very good exercise and in, in the idea of like you know spend the bad money don't spend your bitcoins you know spend your fiat um, so, so I was I was very fortunate, and uh, it's very obvious to me in hindsight that I was like, I was I, I was literally chosen, you know. <laughs> I was, just I was literally say. chosen. <laughs> um, and what I can't imagine doing anything else, man. It's it's crazy. And sometimes, you know. So I've been I've been doing this full time. Like it's going to be ten years in uh, fe February, more or less. Um, but I've been working full time in Bitcoin. And obviously I have my highs and lows. Uh, now, now I'm on a high, you know, now I'm super stoked about Bitcoin. Sometimes uh, like a year and a half ago, uh, I was like, you know, when, when the price was, was shooting up, I was like almost thinking of maybe I should just take it slow, kind of like go into Sydney retirement mode and like buy a farm. And I was thinking about opening up a, a hotel and, and doing like a, a, a retreat center and, and focusing more on like mind, mindfulness and, uh, mm -hmm. And getting, uh, you know, running a surf school or something. Uh, not now. Now I'm definitely back into like full, like I have to, you know, dominate what what <laughs> in the Bitcoin world. <laughs> what changed? <laughs> um, so in Miami 2021, <laughs> I mean, what changed is the same reason why I launched Build Bitcoin actually, which was 
that a lot of the other Bitcoin companies suck so much. And I know that I can do it so much better. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's like an, an ego component there. It's like, I can do it so much better than, than that person or that person. Like, I know exactly the recipe of creating perfect Bitcoin company. And I, ha I just have to do it. I hate the fact that people think that that guy is like doing it right. Like, no, he's not doing it right. I know how to do it right. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just other com Bitcoin companies um, sucking. So, uh, and recently, obviously, uh, you know, the, the FTX, BlockFi, Crypto Contagion, um, whatever you want to call it, uh, the the like non-custodial narrative that I've been pushing from a very edge part of of the Bitcoin space is now becoming very mainstream. Mm. Uh, self custody is not mainstream by by any stretch of the imagination. At some at, at this point, in terms of like how many people self custody versus how many people are using custodial exchanges, um, you know, custodial exchanges are, are still definitely uh, uh, by by a wide margin how people use Bitcoin. But the self-custody versus um, custody narrative is at the forefront of the Bitcoin ecosystem right now. Like that's yeah. what everybody's talking about all the time on Twitter. So well, I me, feel like, me, yeah, you feel like you you need to well, build vindicated. out, build out <laughs> right. well, vindicated and also have, you know, yes. are at the I, forefront I feel of that infra infrastructure that you want to build it out more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Let me ask you about because, you know, I've obviously talked to a lot of people in the space and the argument goes something like, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, like, I, I agree with you that there's more attention on self-custody now because of all the blow-ups, but there's not enough recognition that unless you self-custody, you haven't bought Bitcoin. You know, all these people that are doing yeah. ETFs, trusts, on exchanges, mm -hmm. you, you, you have a, a trusted paper exposure. Maybe it's honored when you want to cash out, although I don't, I'm not sure why exactly you would want that, but uh, it's, you know, maybe it's not. And, and you not appreciating the difference there. Uh, means that you don't you don't even understand why you're trying to buy Bitcoin in the first place, um, and so one of the things that I the the conversation typically goes like this: Well, we believe in Bitcoin. We're maximalists. We're Bitcoin only. We want to bring Bitcoin to the masses. We want more people to be able to access and buy Bitcoin for all the benefits uh, that they can avail of as a result of doing so. But not enough people are ready to self custody, and we can't run a business if we if we don't offer a custodial solution. Therefore, we offer it. And then, you know, so there's basically two questions there. One, to what degree do you think the good actors almost participate in muddying the waters for the bad actors because they normalize custodial operations? And so when, uh, you know, so-called savant in Sam Bankman Freed, you know, comes along and he's just doing it on a bigger scale, it's not seen as that much of a departure from what, you know, the good actors are doing. Uh, and the other thing is, is the trade-off. Like, how do you feel about the trade-off? Because, and like, I'm, I'm not even really shitting on the good actors that offer custodial solutions. I mean, as you alluded to before, I prefer the ones that offer it in the right way because I, I'm very much against this centralizing all those Bitcoin flows and, and Bitcoin deposits in the hands of, you know, four, five, six uh, companies that could easily be 61 or 2 or shut off or, uh, you know, exit scam or whatever. Um, but what, how did you rationalize? Like you, you alluded to this a little bit that you started off with, 
you know, ATM and over the, th that way. And so you, custodial was never really a big part of, you know, how you thought about this. But how did you rationalize to yourself saying, okay, I go custodial, I can onboard a lot more people, there's a lot more revenue in the business, and maybe I can even, you know, spread this Bitcoin thing faster. Or I can do a non-custodial, I, I adhere more closely to the ethos that I believe in, I don't even give people an opportunity to get uh, scammed or rugged by me, and I begin to signal or inculcate what I believe to be the only appropriate means of interacting and engaging with this asset, which is with it under your own custody, you custodying your own Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. How do you make the mm -hmm. business trade off there? Because you're competing with other players in the market, you're competing for the same customers. So what's the thought process there? Yeah, great question. Um, so the context is that I am the sole shareholder of bull Bitcoin. That's that's a big part of the context. Uh, so what the, the company exists to serve me. I don't exist to serve shareholders of other sh shareholders of the company. So what I want is is the company's um, directive. And one of the first things I would say is I am terrified of holding other people's coins. Mm. I, I don't want to do that at all. Um, I cannot possibly imagine sleeping soundly and having a peaceful life knowing that any time at any time someone can come to my house and demand you know hold me ransom um whatever multi-sig setup cold storage multi-layered defense mechanism you can you can imagine um the, the reality of it is if someone comes to your house and kidnaps you kidnaps your wife or your kids uh there is, there is a, the, the, you, you are, you are a honeypot. Um, and you know, it, it, it is a large part of it is like my quality of life is like, I don't want to be a honeypot and like who, who wants that? Second part of it is I would not hold the, my Bitcoins on an exchange. Like how, how can I, how can I sell an idea or service that I myself would never, would never do. Right. So, um, so these are things that are important to me in terms of the, in terms of the trade-offs. Okay. So let me deconstruct this a little bit. Talking about the trade-offs. Yes. Being a non-custodial business is a huge trade-off. How much of the market am I missing out on? Because I don't have like a one click, you know, you click here and you get Bitcoin, Pr probably a significant portion. Um, I would be, in other words, I would be fucking rich, much richer, uh, if I had been running a custodial exchange. Um, so the it's same, same goes for, same goes for being Bitcoin only, right? So Bitcoin only is kind of like the first layer. All right. So if you're Bitcoin only, you're removing like, I don't know, like 75% of the crypto market, 80% of the crypto market. Some people say what it's like 87% of Bitcoiners have, have shit coins. Okay. So you're removing 87% of the crypto market, um, from, from your market base. So, so that's already a huge, uh, and then how many people are willing to be non-custodial, um, I have no numbers on that. I would say maybe 15, 20% of potential Bitcoin buyers. Um, pro probably not as much. I mean, the thing is, given the opportunity to be... So, so, so clients and users that are new to Bitcoin will follow the route that is proposed by the exchange because the exchange is, the, is their Bitcoin experience. It's their source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, they assume that the exchange is doing the best practice. So if you offer a non-custodial exchange and it's just normal as part of the process to download this other app 
on your phone and to copy paste this string of numbers into the exchange very i i would say like not a lot of people are 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 it's like a showstopper for for not a lot of people um a lot of people try they can't figure it out so they leave but it's not something that's like oh i would never do that oh no okay i'm gonna go to another exchange um it's just it's just a lot more effort a lot more um resources to expand in order to onboard those people um so I would say that there is a, a, a certain portion of the population that will simply not self-custody at this point. And if they don't have a console solution, then they will not buy Bitcoin. Uh, but I think that, mo that, that, is, that is not the, the largest part of people who are, who are uh, using exchanges as custody. People use exchanges as their custody because they just thought that that's the way that Bitcoin was, was done. If you, if you leave Twitter and you talk to random people on the street, like oh, they yeah. think you know they just use coin binance you know they just use this you just use that they don't ask many questions and um if they were to use bull bitcoin for the first time if just by chance um then they would be self-custodial bitcoin users and they wouldn't think twice about that they would just know that oh yeah bitcoin i have my 12 words you know that's that's how bitcoin works right i have my 12 words whereas other people are like oh yeah i have my binance account that's that's you know that's how bitcoin works like you get you get a binance account and then right. you send from your binance wallet um so is it can I fault them? I mean, yes, obviously, I can fault them for for doing that. Um, but you know, the the, the trade offs are 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 definitely there. The way that I the way that I've seen it is more of a challenge, right? So okay, so let's use the fact that we're non custodial as a non negotiable item in our company charter. What do we do next? Okay, so we have to develop solutions to help people self custody. And that, that, that becomes a prime directive. If you want to make more money, you need to get more people to be able to self-custody. Um, and that's that's what I'm doing now, right? So uh, the first thing that I did, for example, was I developed this, uh, this uh, phone-based consulting service where people, they just kind of like call in and we have a bunch of people over the phone that are, that are helping them launch their, their Bitcoin, um, their own Bitcoin wallets. Um, I'm working on uh, the bull Bitcoin wallet itself. I have I have some very very good ideas. I, I think I've kind of nailed down how I'm going to make it very very easy for people to self custody uh, their coins in relationship to to an exchange. Um, so yeah, so these are things that I focus on. So you know you can either go the hard route or go the easy route. Um, I guess I created this mental idea in my head that I was like Mister Self Custody. Bitcoin's identity was self-custody. And that was also, by the way, in the wake of Quadriga. So Bitcoin rebranded its its name. Um, it's it, Our previous company was called Bitcoin Outlet. And we were just, you know, there wasn't any kind of like mission values like branded or advertised behind it. It was just like a low-key Canadian Bitcoin on-ramp. Um, but after Quadriga, um, like we really, really made it like our brand. Like when I launched Bitcoin. In, in Alberta, right from the start, it's like, we're gonna make self-custody and Bitcoin maximalism our brand. Mm. So I, I place this, this restriction upon the business. And if, no, no matter what happens with Bull Bitcoin, if I'm step down as CEO, if I raise financing, which I don't plan to, but who knows, these will always be so core to the business from an infrastructure and tech. for example like in our database we don't have there's no bitcoin balance you know from a from, from a very very fundamental like sql 
database standpoint, there is no table for Bitcoin balances that are owed to to users, right? So they're they're physically we are physically unable to become custodial um, without dramatically altering our core infrastructure in the backend. We'd have to rewrite the exchange from scratch essentially for that to be possible. Um, yeah, so I guess I also wanted to make a point. You know, I'm uh, I derive a lot of gratification from the idea of you know potential afterlife, uh, the idea of some kind of destiny. Uh, I, I get a lot of gratification from these kind of like intellectual concepts. I believe that um, my ancestors are up there and they're super fucking stoked about this decision to uh, to be uh, like you know the gods are not impressed by you accepting the money and not and taking the easy route like that doesn't depress any supernatural being at all <laughs> you know it's, it's what expect that's what we expect the lowly humans to do just just take the fucking money and do the do the easy thing and compromise just a little um so i so i get a lot of gratification from that um also um you know uh, there was a Bitcoiner. Everybody knows Jack Mallers. So Jack Mallers and I were were talking uh, before he launched Strike, and uh, he came to Montreal. I invited him to the to the Montreal Bitcoin Meetup, and he and he did a speech at the Montreal Bitcoin Meetup. And you know, everybody's seen Jack Mallers' speech. They're 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 great, and they kind of like make you tear up. <laughs> and this was in like early 2017. Uh, before Bull Bitcoin existed in its current brand and form, and be, before I had like crystallize those ideas into as i said before like i just kind of like happened to be non-custodial bitcoin only but then they crystallized into this very strong mission and he he made a speech about how henry ford had shaped the physical aspect of cities and that the design the design decisions that you make in a product that becomes mass massively used will literally affect the shape the physical shape of cities or mm -hmm. the physical shape of society so design decisions have trade-offs and you if you want to to have an effect you can't force people to change their behavior but if you imbue your values into a product that's massively used then they will absorb your values through use of that product becoming mm -hmm. mainstream um, so, 100%. you know, and, if and I it, want people, is there know. any greater example of that exact phenomenon than Bitcoin itself? I mean, I talk about it all the time. I mean, yeah. Bitcoin has in it these ethics and values built into it. And therefore, if you engage it, if you use it and to the extent that you do, they become inculcated in you almost unavoidably. Yeah. And I think you're getting at the yeah. same principle yeah, yeah. with anything you layer on on top of that. Right. And that should be a design consideration. Yeah. Like what you are the signal you're sending out, what you're inculcating people, like what they're going to be picking up, you know, subconsciously is not the right word, but like uh, uh, up and uh, over and above your actual service that you're providing them. Mm -hmm. What are you going to be kind of sending into them? And I, I think that's a mm -hmm. not a very commonly considered um, aspect of, of designing a product or service, but I, I definitely think it should and will be as we move into a more Bitcoinized world. If for no other yeah. reason, and to I maintain mean, coherence to Bitcoin itself, to maintain coherence with the, the yeah. ethics and values of Bitcoin itself. Yeah, absolutely, and and you you you're totally right. I mean, uh, from me, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the kind of like crypto trolls, they will they will look at maximalist companies that do 
custodial services and they'll say like, but look at you, you're so hypocritical, you're inconsistent with the the concepts of Bitcoin. So how can, how can, you know, how can you preach the values of Bitcoin if you yourself are not imbuing them in, in your, in your product? And something that you said earlier, which is, I just thought about it now, um, that, uh, when you're buying Bitcoin, if you're not taking custody, you're buying numbers on a screen. You're not actually a Bitcoiner. You're 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 someone with exposure to the Bitcoin price. You know, arguably you're a Bitcoin investor, but you're not you're not a Bitcoin user. You're not a Bitcoiner. And there's something that I uh, that I said before, but I want to drive in on that. When you orange pill someone in a let, let's say like you help someone install a wallet. You're face to face with them, and you send them their first Bitcoin, and then you know you're there with them when they they see the screen turn to green and ping on their on their wallet. They will likely never forget that moment. Mm. You will be crystallized in their head as the person that got me into Bitcoin. Um, that holds a lot of like I don't, I don't want to get into like juju or karma or whatever, but that 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 has that that has a huge significance, you know where. A lot of people are considering you to be the source of the source of their blessing, the source of their knowledge. And um, there was a, a, a few periods of my life where I felt to be incredibly lucky. Um, one of them was uh, uh, when when we were uh, hanging out together in Costa Rica. I had a, I had a feeling of divine. Uh, my path was just being lit, and everything was easy, and people were falling on to my path, and. I just felt very, very lucky. There's no other way to to describe it. That's happened to me like maybe four or five times in my life. Like there was a feeling of serendipity is happening, not serendipity, a synchronicity was happening all around me. And I started to develop this idea that that is like my karma from orange pilling all those people, <laughs> right? So, and then these are kind of like funny thought experiments that I, that I but you know, I'm like, they, they kind of became real for me where it was like, I have orange pilled how many people i don't know like tens of thousands of people are now having their own bitcoin wallets uh because of me you know and i just find that to be uh extremely gratifying um and if i'm and like if i'm not sending the coins to them viable bitcoin that i'm not getting this benefit of having actually fully orange pilled a person and also by the way just from an engineering challenge um and and from a business perspective, also uh, in terms of the trade-offs, like okay, by by forcing ourselves to become non-custodial, what Bull Bitcoin has done is become a master at delivering bitcoins to users. I don't believe honestly that there is a single entity, maybe on the planet, that is as good as we are in delivering bitcoin into the hands of the clients. Like I'm going to make this claim. Like Bull Bitcoin <laughs> is the best bitcoin delivery mechanism. We've we like every single trade that has ever happened was an on-chain or lightning transaction coming in and out. I would say in terms of lightning like we still have a lot to a lot to develop, a lot to learn in terms of lightning, but like we're very very good at mastering on-chain transactions. So while a lot of companies are focusing, and this is something that is very hard to reproduce, right? So it's not, what's not hard to reproduce is acquiring users, posting content, um, you know, acquiring users is something that is, it's not, it's, it's not a, it's not a unique skill. It's not something that's, that's, that's very niche, you know, whether it's a Bitcoin exchange or it's a, 
any kind of other app, you're, you're going through, you know, mailing lists and this and ads and whatnot. Um, but becoming masterful at sending and receiving Bitcoin, I think from a, just a business standpoint is like a very, very, very good skill to have. And yes, we've made trade-offs into like not onboarding, um, end users, but now there's a, there's all these opportunities that open up for a company like bull Bitcoin. Look at river, for example. So river, um, is kind of like bull Bitcoin. They have their own infrastructure and I don't know if they are non-custodial, but they they're, do deliver not, the coins but they, using their, they're not non-custodial, but they do they have everything in house and they're very right. sharp on yeah. all, you know, mm -hmm. in what they do. And now they are offering that infrastructure as a service to other businesses. Yeah. Right. So their expertise in being able to deliver Bitcoins to the end user, they're now offering with their river lightning services. I mm -hmm. think this is definitely something that bull Bitcoin is going to position itself as is. So what do we all have to offer as a business is perfect execution of Bitcoin delivery. Right. And very efficient, very cost effective from our point of view. Um, we have, you know, developed our own transaction batching software. We have developed our own coin join software. We've developed, we've developed our own LN URL and LN solutions. All of that is incorporated within CypherNode. We have experience developing our own liquid network API. Um, we have mastered the flow of the Bitcoins coming in and out. Like, you know, from, from, a if you imagine like one trade in and one trade out is a transaction going in and out through our system, it's just an endless flow of coins that are coming through a system. And we have had, you know, sometimes there's been, you know, a little, a little glitch here and there where, you know, we've sent Bitcoins twice to a user or something of that nature. There's been, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say we have a perfect hundred percent record. Uh, nobody's ever lost money <laughs> on bull Bitcoin. Um, we have um, lost some money, for example, by accidentally sending, you know, race condition error in a database or something like that, that we've since fixed, but we have a pretty damn near perfect record of sending and receiving Bitcoins over like eight years. And as a technology company, I'm like, well, you know, I have all of that expertise in-house and it's not just expertise, it's actual infrastructure that implements all this expertise in, in a software uh, project. So, I mean, that's, that's something, you know, that is, uh, I think extremely valuable. Let me ask you this, um, kind of on, we were talking about the economic incentive and the trade-offs for custodial versus non-custodial, but you also hear the, the adoption consideration where people say, you know, we're doing this mm -hmm. also because we need to onboard as many Bitcoiners as fast as possible. And, mm -hmm. you know, then, then you consider things, well, Gox happened over or 10 years ago, let's say roughly. Um, Quadriga happened 17, I guess, 18, something mm -hmm. like that. FTX yeah. just yeah. happened. Yeah. And all of these are examples yeah. of people getting that paper exposure to Bitcoin, thinking they own Bitcoin and then being rugged in for, you know, for out of their Bitcoin. Doesn't matter the scenario, they get rugged, they no longer have the Bitcoin. And as you say, I mean, if you don't custody it yourself, you don't really have Bitcoin and I, you know, you're not a Bitcoiner, however you choose to define that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so do you think it's, do you think the trade-off of getting more people in the door, just saying, come on, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, and we'll hold it for you for a while until you're ready to take it yourself, knowing that that's not going to, most people don't operate like that. 
they'll buy it and they'll say, oh, well, yeah. it seems like I can leave it on the exchange. So I'll just leave it on the exchange. And they won't change yeah. their behavior until something happens. Now, maybe these big blow ups, a cohort of the population who have been dragging their ass, they change their ways. But even still, I mean, we just don't operate like that. If, if, if it's good enough to buy and hold on the exchange for a period of time, people tend to think it's good enough, you know, in, in perpetuity. Um, yeah. And so do you think, considering this whole hyper Bitcoinization scenario, considering the world adopting Bitcoin, <clears throat> do you think it's a wise trade-off or if it, or it's even logical to pursue adoption with all of those caveats and asterisks because it's just a numbers game while knowing at the same time that either as a result of conviction or as a result of being rugged, a lot of those people that you onboard in your haste to, to get adoption are going to end up not being Bitcoiners in the end. They're going to be rugged. They're going to have bad, you know, have a bad taste in their mouth from whatever happening. Some of them will, right? Some of them will, will get through to the other mm -hmm. side. But do you think, I mean, do you think that's a, a illogical ultimately approach to just push adoption at any cost? Or do you think, I mean, obviously you do to a certain degree because this is how bull has gone, but would you rather see that more in the industry where people aren't so aggressive about just getting more people quote unquote holding Bitcoin and they're more adamant about people doing it properly? And the, the add on the final part of this question is you hear a lot of, of, of conjecture on self custody, right? And it goes something like this. Most people aren't going to custody 12 words because that is just somehow beyond comprehension for the majority of people. Therefore, you know, we have to offer other solutions. Now, I, I reject that framing entirely. I, I think mm -hmm. it's part of shifting your mindset from a so-called fiat mindset to a Bitcoin mindset and accessing all the benefits that doing so you know, allows for is changing your perspective on what it takes to be sovereign over your own money. And for fuck's sakes, I mean, mm -hmm. 12 words is not a big request for complete financial freedom and independence, I, you know? And so, but we're coming out of an era where people have relinquished so many, so many of their responsibilities, where they have relinquished so much sovereignty, where they've developed so many dependencies on so many different institutions that it's normal to do so. And it's very abnormal and, and uncomfortable to take that responsibility for yourself. So I, I get that, but I'm, I'm on the side of thinking, Everyone can figure out a way to secure 12 words um, and we shouldn't. And I, I, and I, so I don't think we should hand wave that away. I don't think we should just presume that that's too hard for people. I think we should use that as the foundation and, and build from there. And if it has to be slower, I'm personally okay with that. But you know, this whole question is basically throwing it over to you. Like how do you perceive the pace of hyper Bitcoinization, let's say, and the, and that kind of trade off that's made in the, the rationalizations that are made about it. So I think about this all the time, right? <laughs> um, first thing, I, I fully agree with you, obviously, I, in rejecting that framing. Um, I believe that it's actually harder to secure an exchange account than it is to self-custody Bitcoin. People lose their Bitcoin. How do people lose it? So, so for, for, the first thing is like, how do people lose Bitcoin? Overwhelmingly, um, in terms of like malicious loss of Bitcoin, it's phishing, phishing attacks. So mm -hmm. people get access to your exchange account through SMS, through email phishing attempts, um, through you know very rarely keyloggers, but there, there's there's some sort of of social engineering 
or malicious software and they get access to your exchange account. And then from there, they withdraw the Bitcoin out to, to an external wallet. It is very, very easy for a hacker to get access to your exchange account. It's, it's not significantly harder to get access to your exchange account than it is to get access to your email account or to your online banking account or to your Twitter account. Um, for a lot of people, it's very hard to pretend to prevent yourself from being socially engineered and fish, especially from from older people. If what is separating the the scammer, con man, the fraudster, hacker from your Bitcoin is a password and even a two FA. A two FA only works um, if you're not actively cooperating with a con man or a phishing attempt or something of that nature. Um, so it's it's not that easy to secure an exchange account. Like people get their exchange accounts fish and hacked all the time. Overwhelmingly, people have been um, losing their coins through exchange hacks and exchange rug pulls. The other um, way that people lose their money is by forgetting their backup. That is the other way that people lose their money. So it is undeniable that yes, some people are going to lose their money by not doing the backup, but that is, it's, it is very, very easy for people to do a Bitcoin backup. Very, very easy. Uh, so, you know, my mom has done her Bitcoin backup. Uh, obviously, I've helped her, but um, I set up, uh, I set up a, an orphanage in the countryside of Costa Rica with their own Bitcoin wallets. They were able to do their Bitcoin backup. Everybody is able to do a Bitcoin backup. It's the simplest thing in the world. Um, so I reject that framing entirely. It's, it's not hard. People have been hoarded. It's much more difficult to secure physical cash, yet people do it all the time. It's much more difficult to secure access to an online website. Uh, no, sorry. It's much easier to do a Bitcoin backup than to secure um, access to your online uh, exchange account. So that's for, for rejecting that, that, that framing. Um, people don't do it because they're just not used to it. And it's not part of their, uh, it's just not part of their, 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 their expectation towards life to to have to do that and that expectation has to change um bitcoin doesn't have to change they have to change right um the bitcoin experience as is being self-custodial is is the pinnacle of the experience towards money so um they are the ones who have to adapt so in terms of okay so the the narrative towards adoption at all costs i mean a lot of that is is number go up technology a lot of that is people that want the, the price of Bitcoin to go up as well. It's uh, it's a rather self-interested self-interested worldview where you're like, okay, so I bought Bitcoin, and most people don't understand that you know the supply of Bitcoin is relatively fixed. Um, I mean, the the flow of Bitcoin uh, is fixed, but the supply on the market is not exactly fixed because you know some, you know some large whales will dump and so on and so forth. But the supply of Bitcoin is, is relatively fixed. So if you want the Bitcoin price to go up. You need demand to go up and you as a Bitcoin holder that has been holding Bitcoin for the last two years want to buy a car and you want the Bitcoin price to double within a year and a half so you can afford your car. So you want people to buy Bitcoin right now and you're willing to, um, you know, go at any lengths possible to onboard people to Bitcoin because that's how you're going to be able to um, increase your purchasing power. So a lot of the adoption at all costs right now narrative it's really just like I want other people to buy into Bitcoin so that the value of my Bitcoin goes up, and that's kind of a that's kind of a bearish, I think, kind of like sentiment. It's kind of like you, you want validation. You know, these people are like looking for validation. They're like, I want other people to adopt Bitcoin so that I can be proven right, 
I can feel good about the price of my decision because the price of Bitcoin is going up and other people are joining. Um, I believe that people will adopt Bitcoin when they need it and they will need it. I am There's no scenario in my mind where people don't need Bitcoin within the next, every, every single human on the planet needs Bitcoin within the next you know, five to 20 years. Um, so I don't need the adoption of Bitcoin to happen fast for, for me to derive validation or sense of accomplishment or, you know, to have more purchasing power. Um, I don't need that to happen. That doesn't affect me personally. Like if the, if people don't adopt Bitcoin, the only way it affects me is that I have less places where I can spend Bitcoin. I, but I mean, I don't, I don't derive any, any sense of you know, like gratification from people buying the Bitcoin without actually holding their own keys. Um, well, and the irony is that if you really are someone who's, you know, adopted Bitcoin, you know, you, you it's a one-way street for you, then it, it, it may be counterproductive yeah. because, you know, perhaps all, whether you're an entrepreneur in the space or you're just someone, you know, who orange pills like a madman, uh, you may just be setting up all these people to ultimately leave and dump their coins and or lose them. And, you know, you, you end up shooting yourself in the foot and what you, what you want to happen on the most accelerated timeline possible actually ends up happening on a slower timeline than, ha than otherwise had you, you know, done mm -hmm. the slow and steady and correct approach from the start. And I mean, when, I mean and what's, what's the rush to get people adopted to Bitcoin? You know, you want a lot of people that are well-meaning, that are not doing it out of self-gratification. They'll say, I want people to get into Bitcoin protect to help them protect themselves against the devaluation of fiat right. currencies the shit storm that's coming and whatever. maintain and the shit the shit storm that's coming okay so but if you play out the shit storm that's coming to like there is there is hyper there is hyper inflation there is a catastrophic monetary collapse banks rug pull everybody um you know inflation in the triple digits uh, year on year, like, you know, it's, it's something that I believe is, is, is going to happen. Then do you not think that the government is going to executive order 6102, the custodial Bitcoin exchanges? Do you not think that they're going to impose limits on withdrawals from the Bitcoin exchanges, just like they did for the banks? Um, do you not think that they're going to simply, uh, you know, block or freeze people's accounts? And then you're left with no money at all you know it's not that your purchasing power is decreasing is that your exchange account has been blocked so if the rush is because the shitstorm is coming and you get people onboarded into you know people might as well people might be better off actually having fiat than having bitcoin on an exchange if a shitstorm is coming because you know maybe they should just be buying withdrawing cash and hoarding cash or hoarding gold also you know um, you know, arguably, I'm not, I'm not at all a fan of gold as a, as a, as a technology or as something that's relevant in, in the coming monetary system. But, you know, would, would I rather have physical gold right now than coins on an exchange if a shitstorm is coming? Probably. I mean, it certainly would be more useful. You know, if my Bitcoins are, my Bitcoin account is frozen entirely. There's zero person. It's, it's it's like all the benefits of Bitcoin go to like all, all the properties of Bitcoin just disappear if they're frozen in an exchange account. Mm. <laughs> like Bitcoin is not Bitcoin is not immutable. It's not saleable. It's not uh, easily. It's not divisible. It's nothing. Right. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. You right. Know? That's why and you're not. Gets, you don't own Bitcoin. If, it get, if it's in. If it's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all the, owned by somebody else. 
Yeah, the, pro the properties of Bitcoin don't apply if you don't own it. The only property of Bitcoin that applies if you own it is that, you know, the price of Bitcoin tends to go up over time because of the economics, the underlying economics of Bitcoin. But that is kind of a minor property compared to the other properties of Bitcoin as money. Um, so, you know, for example, um, there's there's a project where I live called Bitcoin Jungle. And I, I'm not I'm 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 not trying to diverge to to another topic of of uh, Costa Rica or anything like that. But um, when I first heard about Bitcoin Jungle, I was highly skeptical. I was like, "Who are these people? They are setting up merchants in the area where they live with with these Bitcoin wallets, and they are getting the coins. They're holding the coins for everybody." Um, I did not know them, and. I, I, I was highly skeptical. I was highly skeptical of the Bitcoin Beach project for the same reason. Bitcoin Beach is a custodial wallet. It seems to me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm also skeptical of other projects like Fedi, Fediment, you know, which is uh, kind of the, the, the idea behind Fediment is that you, we should encourage local leaders to self-custody on behalf of their lesser technologically inclined neighbors. But... You know, when you come to a place like Bitcoin Jungle and you see hundreds of merchants that are accepting Bitcoin successfully without a hitch, nobody's losing their coins uh, because, you know, they're backed up by Bitcoin Jungle. And uh, it's it's an overall very it's it's a very feel good experience for sure. Um, so there there is that part of like, you know, the narrative is like we want to onboard these people onto Bitcoin um, even if it's custodial, because then they, you know, un, you know, bank the unbanked kind of narrative. Uh, I can, I can definitely see the appeal. Sometimes, you know, um, I, I think about Bitcoin Jungle, and I'm like, I'm glad, I'm glad they existed. You know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that they have this custodial solution and that they did, kind of like go for the adoption at all costs, uh, even if you're making shortcuts. Because I personally get to enjoy and reap the benefits of that, because then I can spend my bitcoins <laughs> at the merchants. But on the other hand. You know, I'm also setting up people with Bitcoin wallets here that are not Bitcoin jungle, that are just like blue wallet, and it's just working just as well as well. So it's kind of like, okay, yes, the custodial uh, projects have done some good for Bitcoin, but the good is only relative in the sense that it wouldn't have happened if they had been self-custodial. And what I'm observing is that it probably would have also happened if they had just trusted people their ability to self-custody and maybe what would have happened is that some people would have been reluctant to uh, adopt bitcoin uh if they hadn't had this uh, safety net of you know the central third party holding the keys and the backups for them but in that case all you have to do is spend more time educating them and and making your case you know do you, so do you find um, that people there like maybe they start with that, those types of wallets. And then, you know, it, whether if they're a merchant and they end up accumulating a, a decent amount, then they, they look to self custody or like, how is it working there? I mean, in theory, yes, but the Bitcoin jungle people are like actively, actively trying to get people to withdraw the coins from the wallet also. So, um, to be fair, these are extra, extraordinary guys that actually don't want to be holding the coins. Uh, they they don't derive any income from it. They, there's there's no business model. It's only risk for them essentially. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, the, the 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 guys behind Bitcoin Jungle are only suffering uh, loss, financial losses, time losses, and risks behind the project. 
and they're doing it because they have a good heart. And um, for example, we are getting coal carts down here and they are literally going to a bunch of the places, physically helping people with draw coins, putting them on coal carts. They're also setting up BTC pay servers instead of their own system is like where they can. Um, so I would say as far as custodial projects go, Bitcoin Jungle is probably the best case of of people like becoming custodial and uh, non self-custodial after going first through the custody phase but this is absolutely an exception i think the idea that people start custodial and then they become self-custodial is uh i i don't i very very rarely see that happening mm. very rarely um i think people will buy bitcoin they will leave it on the exchange and then they will leave it there forever and then um they will not think twice until the bitcoins are gone or until one of their family and friends physically you know harasses them and be like you need to withdraw from coinbase here's blue this is usually how it happens people become self-custodial because someone in their environment is like pushing them to do so really mm -hmm. hard otherwise they will just not do it right i'm, I'm sure i'm sure we've all experienced this where you meet someone and you're like oh yeah, yeah i have bitcoin and you don't have a coinbase account and you're like, oh, no, you, you don't have Bitcoin. You need to withdraw. And then you, you, you need to spend some time with them and help them install the wallet. And that's what it takes to get people to, to, with, to withdraw. Um, whereas, and, and it's, it's going to be complicated also, because if someone's already into Bitcoin, has their Bitcoins on Coinbase or Binance, you know, getting them to withdraw to their own wallet, they're, they're just going to say like, oh, I'll just do it later. Whereas someone that wants to buy Bitcoin... It's like the time to set someone up with their wallet is at the time where they want to purchase Bitcoin because it's at the time where they're motivated to do some kind of action regarding Bitcoin, you know? So it's not after they've bought where they don't care anymore because they're like, oh, I've, I've done my investment, I'm done, you know? Like pe people don't think about Bitcoin like we do. It's kind of like elections, you know? People think about politics once every four years and then that's when you make your pitch during election time and then nothing happens mm -hmm. for the rest of the year. It's like people are interested in Bitcoin when they want to invest and then after they've invested, they are no longer interested in doing anything regarding Bitcoin. And then you get waves where something is going to happen in the news, like FTX gets hacked, uh, gets uh, rug pulled, you know, block five, blah, blah, blah. And then, okay, and then, and then you get, you know, a little wave there, a little momentum. So people are going to be like, oh, it's hitting the news cycle. And yeah, then they might self-custody, self but not significantly, you know. You look at the amount of coins of coins held on exchanges. Like it's gone down a little bit after uh, after FTX, um, and you know those metrics are you know complete nonsense too. You know they don't take into account a lot of things. So so who knows how these metrics are calculated? But it, it's not significant. You know it's not like ninety percent of Bitcoins have been withdrawn. It's like oh you know there's a there's a ten percent decrease in the overall stock of Bitcoins held on exchanges or something of that nature. It's it's like not significant. So you know your first interaction with Bitcoin is going to usually determine how you. Your first few interactions with Bitcoin will determine like how you 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 think about Bitcoin as a as a as a as a new user for sure. Yeah. We'll come back to that because I think some of the stuff you're about to launch uh, is informed by that sort of perspective. But mm -hmm. Bitcoin Jungle, I want to talk about that a bit because to me, mm -hmm. these are the most exciting things that are happening. Not ETF launches, not legal tender laws, not whatever. Mm -hmm. All these little pockets emerging around the world where people are actually beginning to use Bitcoin, you know, to actually transact in it. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it's in places that are less so-called developed. 
you know, because the infrastructure, it, it's easier for them to adopt. They're not overcoming a legacy infrastructure and it's availing, it's giving them access to certain capabilities that they never had access to before. And so it's a bit, there's perhaps more of a wow factor. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you, what do you, you know, we're talking about adoption here and we're talking about maybe some of the, the hurdles or perhaps even like the wrong paths that have been gone down in order to facilitate it. How do you see generally Bitcoin adoption taking place? I mean, as you said earlier, you're, you're a pro, perhaps the best at delivering Bitcoin to people, right? Getting Bitcoin to people. Mm -hmm. How do you see us, you know, that slow march towards hyper-Bitcoinization? How do you see that taking place? Because it seems to me that it's going to be stuff like Bitcoin Jungle and these places where people are actually feeling the benefits of Bitcoin, right? They're using it in their life. They're availing of the benefits, you know, none, no one's the wiser of you buying your whole milk off some, you know, farm or wherever. And, and people feel it, like you said earlier, when you, you know, the almost joy you felt in getting people set up with Bitcoin wallets at the, in Bitcoin mm -hmm. embassy days. Mm -hmm. When I went down to El Salvador, mm -hmm. uh, with you, right. Or no, you, you, it was after, um, Costa Rica with a, with a group mm -hmm. of people. That was the mm -hmm. first time I'd really spent Bitcoin. Like I might've sent a few lightning transactions here and there, but that was the first mm -hmm. time I bought, you know, burritos and taxis and stuff with it. And I loved it. And I never thought I would. I thought like, you know, hodl till you die. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to this for dear life. Um, but I loved the experience, not only how easy it was, you don't have to take a card out, you don't have to sign a, a piece of paper, you, you know, you just scan and it's done. But I, there's something way more, uh, you know, you're not transferring a debt to someone. You're not transferring a liability that you know they're going yeah. to be stolen from. And even though I'm not thinking that consciously when I'm transacting, there's just something beautiful about using an honest money when you're, when you're making your yeah. economic decisions and transacting with people. And now I love it. And so yeah. every opportunity I get to spend Bitcoin, I take it because that, that, that's my preferred method. Not only because, you know, the vast mm -hmm. majority of my savings are in it, but I, it's just... It's better for everything, you know. the 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 prying eyes of whomever is is not watching. You're more free to transact. Like it's just better in in all respects. Um, and so, anyways, how do you think adoption is is going to take place in the context of we've got legal tender stories here, we've got small projects here, you know, and and whatever else is going on around the world? How do you see this shaking out? Yeah. Um. Quick side note before I launch on that topic. Um. If you are spending fiat you're spending bitcoin opportunity costs right it's just it's economically the same thing as if you spent bitcoin because you didn't use that fiat to buy bitcoin mm -hmm. right so if you are all in on bitcoin which i don't expect everybody to be um i i am so if i if i you know when i spent i earn bitcoin as well right so um that you know, that leads me to saying uh, the way to global adoption is is people getting paid in Bitcoin. It's earning their income in Bitcoin. The idea of spending Bitcoin to create adoption is that is only the case because spending Bitcoin means someone else is earning Bitcoin. And it's the act of earning Bitcoin that is the act of creating global hyper Bitcoinized, you know, Bitcoin adoption. So if you earn it's much easier, I find, to get someone to accept Bitcoin for payment than to convince someone to invest in Bitcoin. When you're a merchant, like you've already, you have your, you have your inventory and, and you know, mer merchants, well, it's especially true in like Central America and, you know, South America and maybe the so-called quote, quote, like developing world where 
merchants are not as entitled. You know, they still kind of believe in in pleasing the customer and doing everything possible to, to create a good customer experience. And they actually they, they like really want your money. You know, they they will they will they will they will go above and beyond to get your money. And they're usually willing to try a bunch of different payment methods. You know what I mean? Whether it's Bitcoin or it's other types of apps. You know, these merchants always have like fucking like seven apps that they could use to to accept payment from you. Yeah, they're hustling. And they're really well they organized. Want the business. And, yeah, they're hustling. They're 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 hustling and. They um they might be thinking you know oh all right yeah I'll accept Bitcoin like maybe maybe I'll I'll just get like a ten percent loss on that but um you know my profit margin is like thirty percent so I'm willing you know whatever like as long as I get paid it's better than zero and and I'm I'm in this business to have like better than zero so it's 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 a lot easier I think for people to get into Bitcoin by getting paid in Bitcoin um than than investing in Bitcoin for example. The way that I orange pill a lot of my friends or a lot of new people um, is we go out to, you know, a restaurant or we, 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 we go out as a group and I'll ask someone, hey, do you want to pay for me and I'll send you Bitcoin? Like that, um, no one, almost no one ever says no to that. They'll be like, oh, okay, sure. You know, like, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah why not? You know, it's like, okay. Um, and I'm not, you know they're not making like an investment decision on that point or they're not, they're not thinking too much about it. It's like, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just there willing to pay them. I have the phone and it's just like, just open the phone and I'll just send you the money there, you know? And, and then you'll, and then they have, you know, adoption starts with having Bitcoin in people's hands and paying them in Bitcoin is just such an easy way to, to get them into Bitcoin. Um, if you're getting your income in Bitcoin, then, it makes sense to spend the Bitcoin as well, right? So if as a business, you're getting your income in Bitcoin, then um, you will start to figure out, okay, well, who can I pay with Bitcoin? Does any of my staff want to be paid with Bitcoin? Does one of my supplier want to be paid with Bitcoin? Um, there is no Bitcoin adoption without a circular economy. It's not, it's not like, a, it's, it's not a feel good hippie, like commie concept to have a circular Bitcoin economy. I know a lot of, you know, Hardcore Bitcoiners were kind of like the right the idea of, of you know trying to force a circular economy in, in a certain way. It sounds very like you know yuppie and uh, hippie to to be into that, but it's it's true. I mean, um, if you're earning Bitcoin, you're spending in Bitcoin, then Bitcoin becomes in a way a unit of account. You're you're getting rid of the third parties that can censor you. If you have a circular economy, you don't need exchanges anymore. Exchanges are the weak point of Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. So exchanges are the biggest threat to Bitcoin. Um, even a non-custodial exchange like Bull Bitcoin, at any point in time, we can get shut down. I mean, that is my my number one concern. I know for a fact that I can just wake up one day and my business is gone, right? My bank accounts are frozen. The government said no more, and then people cannot sell their Bitcoin anymore, cannot buy Bitcoin anymore. Um, the government hasn't done that because it's not, there's no return, political return on that. There's a large, there's a large constituency of Bitcoiners. Um, there's, there's courts in place. There's international reputation there. There's, you know, nobody wants to attack the fintech sector and look, uh, and look bad. Um, but as we've seen with like the vaccine mandates and the mask mandates, something as radical as like outlawing Bitcoin exchanges certainly can happen. And they've done crazy things, man. They fucking force people to get the jab if they want to go to school. You mm -hmm. know, they think they can't like just shut down Bitcoin exchanges. So, so, so like what happens in that case? Well, we need people to be able to earn Bitcoin another way and acquire Bitcoin another way. Uh, and that's through getting paid 
getting painted Bitcoin. So, um, for ex and, and you know, when I think about adoption, you know, okay, so is is Uber is an app like U Uber or Airbnb allowing people to pay with Bitcoin um, a significant step towards Bitcoin adoption? I would say no. What is a significant step is if the Uber driver and the Airbnb host are getting their payment settlement from Airbnb or Uber and Bitcoin, mm. right? If you are able to get paid out through your P2P app or uh, whatever sh uh, sharing economy or whatever it is app with Bitcoin, I think that is a significant step towards adoption. So I am a huge, huge, huge fan of people earning in Bitcoin and I'm a huge fan of spending in Bitcoin because there is a counterparty to that trade that is earning Bitcoin in return. And, um, and yeah, uh, so, so it's as simple as, you know, people need to be earning their money in Bitcoin. 100%. And then they start valuing Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, I know you've been to El Salvador a few times. I mean, it's kind of mm -hmm. a little bit off topic, but I mean, wh what, what was your impression? I mean, there's a huge disconnect between um, the perception of El Salvador and the reality on the ground. <laughs> I think that uh, nobody's using Bitcoin. You know, not a lot of people are using Bitcoin. Cer certainly, Zante, there is a basically. lot more adoption. Right? Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a there there is there's a lot more Bitcoin adoption in in Bitcoin jungle than in El Dante, which means that there's like there's a there's an issue with it, it shouldn't be the case, right? El Dante is like the center of the, the 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 bitcoin law and the the, the legal tender project the the center of international focus everybody in elzante should be accepting bitcoin you know and they're they're not i think one of the reasons or the main reason is that it is a top-down government-led project it's as simple as that the shivo app is possibly the worst thing that could have happened to bitcoin in el salvador <laughs> The Shivo app, the government app, is so bad. The, ex the user experience is so terrible. The just j j it's it's just not a Bitcoin app, you know. It, it it's just it's 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 hacked together, and it 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 doesn't work. Why is it so bad? People's money. I don't mean like what makes well, it like I mean, like what makes it bad. I mean, how could it possibly be have this many issues still at this point with the amount of resources presumably were available for it? Because it's the, the government issued a contract and uh, to to have it built, it's it's the same it's the same old story again, right. you know. <laughs> and I don't want to go into too, I I heard a lot of stories uh, as to how Shiva was built from from people that are that are involved or that have heard about people that are involved. Long story short, you know, there was many many different contractors were involved in building it, um, and it's uh, you know it's 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 a it's a government it's a bureaucracy behind it, you know. There's not a lot of skin in the game as well, and uh, it was it's it's not a grassroots bottoms up project, and I think there's also, I mean no there's it's just a reason it's just a government project you know and it was it was forced top down, um, so I think that what's happening in Salvador is overhyped, I wish that it had been more grassroots i think it started out as grassroots it grew too quickly and uh the model of bitcoin adoption that i want to see is not the government leading it at all i think mm -hmm. it's it's not a failure i don't think el salvador is a failure uh, i just think it's not a success yeah right um 
the contrast with Bitcoin Jungle is very stark. Uh, and also, like the, the the focus of the focus of Bitcoin Jungle has been very strategic because these are like local people that are low in resources that are like resourceful individuals. They've targeted the market really, really well. Um, they've, you know, it's it's just a group of like it's three founders and it's you know realistically it's like you know under ten people that are kind of like involved and friends and and helping out. And uh, when you're very small operation um, and you scale very very slowly like one by one, you can iterate a lot and um, garnish a lot of like local trust. Like people don't trust Shivo. I I know that money dis money disappears in the Shivo wallet. Shivo wallets get get gets frozen. Um, accounts get just deleted all the time, and weird stuff happens, and you can't like. It's just it's just like. And that's that's also the problem with adoption quickly at all costs. You know, it's like the infrastructure needs to be built before you have the adoption. Mm -hmm. So and the right infrastructure, you know. Um, so it's actually a, a huge cautionary tale, which is that, you know, adoption of, at all costs. It shouldn't be adoption at all costs. It should be infrastructure at all costs. Right. Like infrastructure should happen now, and then um, people will switch to Bitcoin when they're when they need it. And mm -hmm. when they need it, you need to be there ready to accept them, right? Um, you know, this line I wrote in the Cry Harder article, and a lot of people seem to like it, which is that um, a you don't need a marketing department for a lifeboat on a sinking ship. Yeah, right? What line. you need is the lifeboat to just float, you know, and 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 be and and. And people will will fight to to get on it when they when they need it. Um, so so yeah so yeah that's the main difference. And then uh, here there's zero government involvement in the project at all. Uh, it's low profile, and uh, I like it very much like that. And I think I think people here like one of the main reasons actually I think Costa Ricans are really interested in Bitcoin. It's not that they're unbanked actually. Um, it's that they have uh, not a lot of of interesting investment vehicles i think that that is probably the main reason why people are interested in bitcoin like you know vendors out of farmers, farmers market they're not like beggars on this day they have savings these people have some savings and mm -hmm. and these people have internet they spend time on facebook they uh, you would be surprised as to like how many of these just random farmers market vendors are like based you know and they they follow you know the same kind of stuff that we follow with klaus schwab and and uh they're they're very very well informed and you know they heard they know about the financial crisis and they know about inflation and um they're actually looking to like invest in bitcoin a lot of them and uh because there's no there's not a lot of opportunities in when you're in the jungle to to invest in in anything that's tangible uh, right. there's no there's certainly no not a lot of gold here um so, and also, um, one of the things that helps, I think, here is it's very hard for expats to get money into Costa Rica. So Bitcoin plays the the a, a, a different role here. Here in Costa Rica, it's basically expats have Bitcoin, and um, they they don't have other forms of fiat in the country. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you, you you go to Costa Rica as a Bitcoiner, um, you know, you can have access to all your wealth. You know, not all your wealth, but Presumably, you don't travel with your, you know, hardware wallet or something like that. But um, you have access to some bitcoins, and you don't have access to cash. C cash is actually really hard to get here. You know, um, you've experienced it. If you want to get cash here, you like line up at an ATM, which is like ten minutes 
minimum drive away and then you know you're kind of like rolling the dice whether or not there's cash at the atm at the moment and like forget sending a wire transfer into costa rica if you send a wire transfer into costa rica from abroad you need to show up at the bank and they will do a full-fledged investigation on like every wire that comes in like where did you get that money okay from an investment portfolio or i sold my car all right you sold your car in canada and that's how you got the money show me the deed show me the deed transfer show me a notarized form that that proves that the the wire we just received in your account here came from this or that it's very very difficult um so the dynamic here in costa rica which is super interesting is like these expats have the money the bitcoin they come here and the locals don't have a lot of investment opportunities or investment vehicles they're looking to have uh, bitcoin for that purpose and it's like oh perfect you know like they have access to 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 cash here we don't um, foreigners uh, don't have the same rights as to like foreigners are not allowed to use a national payment system here in Costa Rica. You know, SinPay, that's how people use, like they pay each other through a system called SinPay. Foreigners are, you, you cannot have access to this uh, payment system unless you're a legal resident of the country. What's the, so there's like a really nice match. Between- I mean, I was, I was going to say, it's probably no point cause there's probably some stupid, you know, government bureaucratic sort of rule, but w- what's the logic behind excluding the foreigners? No from idea. Makes, makes, makes no sense at all. <laughs> they would make so much more money. There would be so much more spending in the economy. Like so it's so hard to buy like, a, you know, it's not that hard to like get 200 bucks out from an ATM, you know? Yeah. You'll do a line, you'll drive, you'll, you'll get your 200 bucks, but like buying a car or, you know, like anything that's like more than a few, anything that's more than what you can withdraw in an ATM, which is like two or 300 bucks, it's just so difficult. And um, if you were able to spend your Bitcoin, do if, if, if you had something like bills, like what we have in Canada, in Costa Rica for foreigners, then you would be able to tap into, okay, so people are able to spend their Bitcoin and tap into the the local uh, national payment system, I think that would be huge. That would allow all of these expats to seamlessly move their money to Costa Rica, which is the, big, the biggest hurdle to, to living in Costa Rica is by far, like for expats, it's getting money in the country. It's it's very, very difficult. Yeah. You know, on the El Salvador piece, I, uh, I've i been there three times now. And one, sure, nobody really uses Bitcoin outside of El Zante. But the, the, the general... There's a lot of, let's say, ancillary benefits of, well, first and foremost, Bitcoin can't be a top-down thing, right? Obviously, we spent the whole podcast discussing that, right? Like you have to own Bitcoin for yourself and you have to make that choice and you have to take that responsibility and nobody can do it for you. So just, it, it just can't be a top-down mm-hmm. thing. But I think there will be, a, you know, other ancillary benefits to a favorable regulatory climate, let's say, in, in El Salvador. And we're seeing that now where Bitcoiners are coming in and there's at least the assumption, if not the reality on the ground yet, that there's going to, you know, business will be easier to conduct. And maybe some of these, you know, go-between issues that people have had historically between Bitcoin and, and the fiat land, maybe some of those will be less fr- more frictionless in a place like El Salvador. Um, remains to be determined. And, you know, I, I think the, the Bitcoin can I, rollout... Can I touch on that real quick? Um, I had a panel at the Adopting Bitcoin Conference in El Salvador with um, one of the founders of Galoy, Hunter. And uh, the topic was um, maintaining El Salvador's regulatory advantage on the global scene. And the conclusion of the panel was that there is no regulatory advantage in El Salvador. 
it is re it is much harder to operate. It is incredibly difficult to operate a Bitcoin business in El Salvador. Is that set it's, to change? It's, it's like, so, are they attempting to it, change that, rewrite no. those regulations, anything like that? No. So, so the thing is, like, first of all, if you if you want to make it Bitcoin friendly for Bitcoin businesses, you need to make it business friendly. And El Salvador is not business friendly. It's a very very bureaucratic government. Um, a lot of Central and Latin American governments are like that. It's actually called the Spanish bureaucratic tradition. Uh, so it's it's not easy at all. And now basically what you've done is you've placed Bitcoin, crypto and blockchain, fintech, whatever you want to call it, under the domain of bureaucrats. So now bureaucrats are supposed to get interested about this. They're supposed to get to to include Bitcoin into their processes. So they're, they're, they're like Ronald Reagan said, like the, the, the scariest words are like, I'm from the government and here. Imagine like, um, Hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm a very, very thick bureaucracy and I will help Bitcoin businesses establish themselves here by establishing a framework for them. And you hear that as a Bitcoin business, you're like, fuck this. Like I'm out of here. You know, mm. um, what I want to, what I want to hear as a Bitcoin business is I'm going to pretend you don't operate in my country. Do whatever you know. Like, like that's what I want. That's what I want to hear. You know, right. what what I want to hear is as long as you don't get sued and there's not a national scandal, uh, which involves our customers, like with pitchforks on the street, demanding answers as to where their money went because it disappeared from your business. As long as that doesn't happen, let's just pretend we don't know that the other exists. Like, I don't want to know that you operate here. And you don't want to know anything about us. And like, that's perfectly fine. Right. So one of the reasons why, so when I first went to El Salvador, I was thinking like, all right, maybe I'll think about opening bull Bitcoin in El Salvador. You know, seems that, um, we actually, we were actually decently good at doing OTC on, on a global scale. And, uh, we're specifically good at doing real estate. So bull Bitcoin has a real estate division in Canada, which is very successful. Uh, a lot of people use our services to buy and sell homes. Like Bitcoiners are buying property with with bills, and people are selling their homes. And we we have a lot of good relationship with escrow services and notaries and stuff like that in Canada. And in El Salvador, that's what people will tell me. Like we have a problem where these foreigners want to buy property with mm. Bitcoin. These Bitcoiners are, are are moving to the 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 Bitcoin land, and they literally cannot spend their Bitcoin here. So I was thinking about, um, you know doing a business in El Salvador. And then the, the, the idea that I would have to be in, in, a, in a kind of sense, both a competitor to go there. And that's scary. You know, you're a competitor to the, to the government of El Salvador because they run a Bitcoin exchange, right? So I, I'm in an exchange, I'm going to El Salvador, I'm competing with the government. I'm like, that is, and I mean, despite what people say about, you know, Bukele and there, there's, you know, there's a lot of FUD about civil rights and all that, but I mean, they're not exactly like, they're not like a hands-off, nice government. You know, they're very hands-on, very harsh government. Uh, whether or not that's good or bad, that, that's to be debated. But I certainly would not want to be on their bad list. Like, you don't want to be on the government of El Salvador's, like, naughty list. That's for sure. They will fucking kick your door down and you will go to prison and you will not see a judge for five years. You know what I mean? Um, they, you will be memory hold. So um, I, I don't want to do that. And then in another way, you kind of like partner with the government of El Salvador because they want, you, you know, you, you, we're all part of this El Salvador story with the government. I mean, it's just, a, it's just a weird vibe, man. It's like, I, it's just, 
so, so too much proximity to a government is just it's just weird mm. i i i don't want that personally um and obviously i'm kind of an anarchist so like i'm specifically reluctant to do that but i think yeah. a lot of business people are just not keen on so, being involved with governments at all so, e do, e so, even even non-radical business people sure so do you think i mean it's sounding like based on all the things we've discussed thus far like the approach here is just to actually get bitcoin in the hands of people like they control it mm -hmm. and then just mm -hmm. attempt as much as your pos as possible to earn it for your labor whatever you provide to the market and to spend yep. it with with other people regardless of the laws of the yep. jurisdiction regardless of of anything yep. do it under the table yep. like you know who, who yep. again if you're transacting peer to peer bitcoin then especially for consumables, if we're not talking about, you know, yep. big ticket items, who the hell is going to know anyways? And this is how, you know, mm -hmm. the, the mycelium of Bitcoin adoption just grows and grows and grows and grows all over the place. And you don't have to rely on the, the sanction of governments. You don't have to rely, even if they're good ones, right? As we're discussing, even if they're so-called, mm -hmm. you know, uh, pro-Bitcoin, mm -hmm. uh, this is the way to foster adoption. Slow and steady. Everyone yeah. is ownership of their Bitcoin. Earn it and spend it. And that's what everyone should be promoting and, and perhaps spending less time, you know, trying to get the ear of people that they presume are, have, you know, more powerful levers, i.e. regulators, because, you know, that's, that's ineffective at best and, and detrimental yeah. at worst. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is, that is the, the key. The key to adoption is, uh, is, is not to try to make these big plays um, that are very highly impactful plays like orange pilling a government it's as you described and it's not glorious and it will not get you international press uh, to orange pill your vendor but that is actually how it works um and just to like end on the topic of el salvador there is for example you know the what's good about el salvador is that the the perception that el salvador is this like bitcoin paradise has made it so that bitcoiners moved there hardcore maximalist bitcoiners you know that are very ide ideological and they are then doing some of that grassroots work right, right. that wasn't there before uh, a good example of that is mi primer bitcoin um the the bitcoin educational program uh which is you know so far a non-governmental program uh it's it's a it's a private program and they're they're teaching uh, Bitcoin in schools and then when you follow the program as I did and uh, I saw it on the ground I was at one of the graduations it is basically telling people uh, long story short like definitely don't use a government wallet you know like use your own wallet this is how you download moon this is how you download green and this is how you do your backups this is how you recover your backups and etc etc so there is there is some value to that like it's not it's not the government that is providing the value. It's not the Bitcoin law that is providing. I think the Bitcoin law is providing no value. Uh, it's not even enforced. Like you know, like, like almost no one is accepting Bitcoin payments. And Bitcoin is not legal tender in El Salvador. Let's be honest. Like it's um, a, a legal tender means that everybody is obligated to accept it as payment. And I don't think it's a good thing to have a legal tender at all. But it's it's just not legal tender. The, the, otherwise, everybody would be getting fined for not accepting Bitcoin. You know. Right. Um, but they created, Bukele created the marketing movement that attracted Bitcoiners. And the fact that these Bitcoiners are there and they are themselves starting grassroots projects, it may become like a self-fulfilling prophecy because yeah. of that. Yeah, I agree. Um, and perhaps this is the right segue into some of the stuff that you've been working on. Because when we chatted at yeah. dinner in El Salvador, where 
you guys had a little bit of trouble paying with Bitcoin ultimately. The dinner was great though. I enjoyed it. Um, mm -hmm. You told me about some of the stuff you'd been working on, which I think is a foray into Latin America in some capacity and a redesign redesigning mm -hmm. of, you know, your app and your website and how you onboard people. So why don't you hit me with that now? Cause uh, I love yep. to hear of bull Bitcoin expanding its services to more people because, you know, as you know, I'm a fan. Yeah. So, um, bull Bitcoin has been working on its infrastructure first and foremost for the last year and a half. So we've been building the, the company for, for quite a while. So, um, we had been, uh, everything's made in house, right? So we started off with uh, prototyping and we, we built this kind of like gigantic infrastructure based on kind of like, uh, old foundations. So we're very, very much a software company first and foremost. One of the things that I realized with Bitcoin self-custody, honestly, it's it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous, but people don't want to use two apps. Right. So if you're if you're non-custodial exchange, the user signs up to your exchange. And then the first thing you tell them is like, actually you need to leave my app, go to another app, download the other app do stuff in the other app. Once you've done with the other app, come back to my app. Um, that is usually where you lose people. You're sending them to another app and then they kind of like lose focus on, on, on yours. Um, people like to have like one app where they see their Bitcoin wallet and where can they, they see their portfolio, where they can do like their pay their bills and where they can use their, their fiat components. They, they don't want to go back and forth in, in two different apps. So, um, one of the things that we are working on right now at Bull is we're building our own self-custodial Bitcoin wallet. There's a lot of Bitcoin wallets out there, so it seems kind of redundant. Like, why would Bull Bitcoin build its own like non-custodial wallet where you know Blue Wallet works perfectly fine and Green Wallet works perfectly fine, and you know Samurai um, works perfectly fine as a as a Android-based wallet? Um, well. The kind of idea that I had in mind is, okay, so the user will have its own self-custodial Bitcoin wallet, but the exchange is going to be part of the same app. So when they buy Bitcoin, the exchange will automatically ask the Bitcoin wallet app on the user on the same app to create a new address and will send the Bitcoin to that address. The user will not have to copy paste anything. Um, from their perspective, they're just like clicking a button, they're buying Bitcoin and the Bitcoin is appearing there in their account. Um, this is how Relay works in Europe. So there is one other company in the world that has implemented this model and that's, that's Relay. So when you download the Relay exchange app, you open it up, you have to write down your 12 words. When you download the Bull Bitcoin exchange app, you will have to write down your 12 words, add your passphrase and do all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the difference, I think, what's going to set Bitcoin, Bull Bitcoin apart is that Bull Bitcoin's exchange app is going to be open source as well. So if you have the, the non-custodial wallet as part of the same app as the exchange app, both of them need to be open source. Like both these components need to be open source. So the Bull Bitcoin app is going to be, mobile app is going to be open source. Um, so when you are um, like, spending fiat when you want to pay a fiat bill or something like that uh the bull bitcoin app will ask your bitcoin wallet say hey um you know do you want to do you want to send some you know do you want to spend your bitcoin right now and you will like click confirm 
and your Bitcoin will be sold. So from a user experience, it's going to look and feel the same as if we were custodial. Mm. The only difference is going to be that in the beginning, you will have to do your backup. If you delete the bull Bitcoin app from your phone, if you lose your phone and you haven't done your backup, you're fucked, just mm. like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, you will... Since you're, you know, the app is connected to us, um, we will be able to, we have a, like a customer support relationship with people that wallets do not, right? So most wallets, they have like a Slack channel or a Telegram channel. Um, with us, you are a bull Bitcoin customer. You're also a user of the wallet. So um, we can email you, we can text you, we can call you, remind you to use the, uh, the backup solution. So um, I think this is going to be, uh, so we, and the technology, we, and the reason why we're doing it is also because it's possible. So building a Bitcoin wallet used to be very hard work, very, very difficult. But it just so happens that Jack Dorsey funded a company called Spiral. Spiral is, uh, or now it's called Block. I'm not sure. No, it's still Spiral. Anyway, so Jack Dorsey funded a company to do open source Bitcoin development. Um, that's linked to Cash App, Spiral, Block. I'm not sure exactly, you know, the relationship between those entities. Anyway, long story short, they created a project uh, called BDK, Bitcoin Development Kit. And Bitcoin Development Kit is a software project which enables companies like Bull Bitcoin to build a wallet using their source code. It's kind of like a white label Bitcoin wallet software. Mm -hmm. uh, what they decided to do is like, hey, we're going to create this thing that makes it really, really easy to build a Bitcoin wallet in the hopes that Bitcoin companies like ours would use it and build a Bitcoin wallet. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. So the bull Bitcoin wallet is is uh, nearly completed. Uh, we're, we're testing it right now. And uh, yeah, we're going to be launching that um, pretty soon this year. That's very, very exciting. The idea is really to make self-custody feel and look very very seamless and there's there's been so much thought given to the trade-offs there like it's been it's been super fun so d designing the bitcoin wallet um what i envision to be the perfect user experience flow uh it's very gratifying because you know you, you always find something wrong with a wallet there's no perfect bitcoin wallet so mm -hmm. this one is the one that's like perfect for me this is what i wish um blue wallet would do for example this is what i wish that samurai would do or green would do um, so, so that's been super fun. Um, one of the main trade-offs has been, okay, so we need to make it look and feel, um, very, very simple, but we need to absolutely make sure that the user makes the backup, does the backup, does it properly. Um, another company that has been doing great work on that topic has been Synonym, the company by John Carvalho, which is a, a great, great builder. And it's also a great, great product. Um, so yeah, so for example, um, do you force backup or not? You know, do you force a user to do their backup or not? If you force a user to do their backup at that moment, you are some users you you will lose them, right? Yeah. So by forcing, for example, by forcing a user to do a backup, you're incentivizing them to like take a screenshot, right? So it's like, oh, I just want to use the app, like, all right. Or you're inv you're incentivizing them to like write the backup on whatever first piece of paper they find. They're not necessarily in a mindset right now to be doing a proper backup mm. when they're downloading the app. You know, they might be on, they might be like, I don't know, like they're at a bar and someone's like, hey, like you should check out the Bull Bitcoin app. Like, oh yeah, okay. Uh, oh, it says to do a backup and it's not letting me go forward until I've 
proven that I've written out the 12 words. Like, all right, give me a napkin. You know, right, I'll write right, it down right, right now or I'll write it down in my notes. Um, and again, so that first experience of them writing down their backup, that's going to be their backup. <laughs> you know, it's good. They're not going to do it again because they've done it once in a bad spot. So, um, you know, allowing or not allowing people to do the backup. Okay, so I say they don't do a backup. You don't force them to do a backup, which is what we're doing. Then there's the passphrase, you know? So do you force people to put the passphrase? If you don't ask them to, put, to, to do a passphrase at that moment, um, they will not do another wallet later with a passphrase. But if you force them to do the passphrase now, uh, you need to make sure that they understand that if they lose a passphrase, they're fucked. Mm. It's just like, and you also need to make sure that they don't write down the passphrase with the, the, uh, the backup. So mm -hmm. in our case, for example, we, uh, we don't force people to put the passphrase, but the password, cause you can put an empty passphrase, but the passphrase is there. So, right. So we decided to put the passphrase right at the beginning. So for example, when you open blue wallet, you don't have the option to do a passphrase to add like a, um, a, a, a extended seed words to it. Yeah. That's an advanced option, right? But we decided to do a, another route. So anyway, so that's, that's been super fun. Um, uh, exploring different backup solutions and, uh, and yeah, so, and, and what's really exciting is like now the exchange part of the app also needs to be open source because, um, you know, the whole thing needs to be, uh, the user needs to be able to check the, the checksums of the code and the signatures to make sure that whatever we're releasing is what's on GitHub. Uh, so we're going to have to, you know, it's, it's, it's an exciting challenge for developers, like for the first time. Um, it's, it's, it's motivating, you know, nobody wants to write spaghetti code, uh, if, you know, external developers are able to critique your stuff. So, right. you know, when you're writing code in private, that's not open source, you might do some shortcuts that are not pretty. Uh, when you're writing open source code, there's like an ego component that falls into it. So, so that's interesting. Um, yeah. And then, uh, eventually we're going to be, uh, also using lightning as well, using the LDK software. That's the same software that. Uh, synonym that John Carvalho is using for the synonym or it's called BitKit actually the BitKit wallet also developed by Spiral um, and uh, very exciting stuff so uh, you're we're not into, the first you into new markets too, company right? to do that was that sorry oh sorry you, you finish that point no yeah yeah so uh, I think I already said it, but we are not the first to do it uh, Relay in Europe it was the first that I've ever heard of to do it and um I had the idea for a while. They they did it first, uh, so I'll give them credit for that. But I think we're going to be the first open source uh, wallet to do that. So really, technically, you don't actually know if you're self-custodying the coins, you know, because you don't know what the app is doing. They could have a backup, you know, mm. and they, the seed words that you have are obviously real seed words because if you uh, import them in another wallet, they will work, but you don't necessarily know that they're not holding a copy of your seed words. Right. Um, and is this going to coincide with you guys entering other markets? You alluded to Costa Rica. Yeah. I can't remember if you mentioned any others when we spoke. Yeah, well, you know, the number one question, uh, so so, so bull Bitcoin is Canada only, has been Canada only since the beginning, and uh, we've decided not to be Canada only anymore. A lot of people want us to, you know, to, go, to go to their country. They want to use our services. I also think that the Canadian market is incredibly well served uh compared to other markets there's so many bitcoin companies in canada it's unbelievable like mm. there's there's like 15 bitcoin exchanges that are from that are run by canadians from canada that have track record i mean none of them are as good as us according to my humble opinion uh but certainly um you know 
Canada is extremely well served. And what we've built is kind of what we built in terms of like the infrastructure, the, the cipher node infrastructure, you know, the, our, our brand, our value set, but, but mostly the, the tech infrastructure and what we're building is like so overkill for like such a small market as Canada. Like we, we, we've built something that, you know, as I mentioned, like the only other companies that I know that have built something similar, like Cash App and River, you know, and, um, you know, the CypherNode project is, 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 is huge. It's, it's really, it's, it's a very, very good, very high quality Bitcoin infrastructure project. Um, nobody in the world has been able to do coin joins, for example, as an exchange, right, to coin join all the deposits that come from users and to send Bitcoins that are, uh, uh, that are, whose origin is obfuscated so like when a client receives bitcoin from bull bitcoin a, a third-party chain analysis software uh will not be able to determine that all right so this client um they won't be able to track that person back to bull bitcoin through chain analysis they can the obviously join on the way like, in legal and on the way out it. right well or just on the way out technically they're all coin joined on the way in technically so because you know they're on the way out it's going to the user so we don't coin join them like you can't coin join them on the way out. They, 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 all the coins come. So right, users right, that are depositing right, right. coins into Bill Bitcoin, they're coin joined afterwards, and then uh, then they go out. So there's just like one coin join. Um, although technically speaking, in a, in a there there might be a way at some point to have like a batch payout mm -hmm. that's part of a coin join. But the problem with coin join is that you you're and I'm sidetracking really quickly here, but you need equal output amounts. Right for it to be a coin join. So, um, if everybody was buying like 0.01 Bitcoin, then then we could coin join, right? Mm -hmm. Because we'd be sending the same amount to all the users, but users are buying different amounts of coins. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, also um, it's it's kind of strange. I think not a lot of Bitcoin companies have the same level of customer service that we do. And this is not something that should be hard to replicate. It shouldn't be hard or technically challenging to have like excellent customer service. But I think there's just the bull Bitcoin culture is like really, really intensely focused on the customer and providing an, an outstanding customer experience. Um, probably because our users are, no, are non-custodial. They are fewer, they're high quality users. And we have this relationship where, you know, we need to absolutely make sure that the user doesn't fuck up, right? Um, that isn't, we, we, the, the last thing I want is for me to send Bitcoin to a user and like the user loses their wallet, has another backup. So like our customer experience, in exp it's scary to be self-custodial, even though it shouldn't be. Um, so we just have this, this culture of, because like if, if, you're, if, if your users are buying Bitcoin and you're self-custodying for them, you don't really care about them, you know, like once the trade is done, like they, they're not even your customers, you know, they're just numbers on a screen. Uh, you don't have any responsibility towards them mm. other than sa safekeeping the coins, but you don't have any responsibility towards them in terms of customer support, right? Um, whereas our responsibility extends to after sending you the coins, we want to make sure A, you don't lose the coins, B, you don't get stolen and C, you don't get scammed also, right? Um, a large part of our customer support is telling people not to invest in Ponzi schemes and shit coins after they've bought Bitcoin. Cause a lot of people buy Bitcoin to invest in something else. Right. So um, a lot of the things that we've built and developed either as a culture or as a technology sent uh, as products or as backend operations are just like overkill for the Canadian market. So the first country that we want to get into is Costa Rica. Um, 
there's you know the main reason why that is is well i'm here <laughs> yeah. and that's kind of like how i operate like i want to be able to use bull bitcoin here um but also because there is you know nobody needs bull bitcoin in canada like it's not like I, everybody needs bull bitcoin but there's no like extreme urgent like we need a company like bull bitcoin in canada uh, there's a lot of other non-custodial Bitcoin companies. There's not a lot, but there's like, you know, three or four in Canada. Um, there's there's no Bitcoin company in Costa Rica that does anything like we do. Not at all. There's absolutely no way for like anybody to pay their bills with Bitcoin, to pay a third party with Bitcoin. Buying and selling Bitcoin, as far as I know, the only way to do it is international wires with Binance. Um, it's extremely, extremely underserved. And the one thing that I think we need in in Costa Rica, in any country, to generate confidence in Bitcoin is to make it sellable. So, if you can't sell your if you cannot sell your Bitcoin easily and get fiat, it's hard to trust Bitcoin, mm. right? A lot of it's like okay, so I buy Bitcoin, like how how do I sell it in the future? Well, you can't actually. Um, once you buy it, you know, if you want to sell it, you need to send it to this Asian company, uh, and then they're going to send you an international wire, and then you're going to have to go to the bank and explain where it. It, it just makes like, ah, uh, I don't know. Like, pe people need to feel like they can exit their investment. Otherwise, it, otherwise, it kind of feels like a. Per it, it kind of feels like a scam if you can't if you can't exit. A lot of the merchants here, you know, they are holding on to Bitcoin, but. The Bitcoin jungle guys are cashing them out physically, less and less. It 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 really it's it's really rare nowadays that that the merchants are getting cash because all the merchants have been so orange pilled, right? That they're actually buying Bitcoin at this point. Um, but that you know, it, it, it's it's kind of a unique situation. But um, you need the merchants to be able to like, for example, pay their fiat bills, right? So so if they're accepting Bitcoin payments, at some point if they are too successful. If like, let's say right now the, the merchants here, you know, it's like five to ten percent of their sales are in Bitcoin. That's fine because that's their profit margin. They're investing their profits in Bitcoin effectively. If that goes to like 30, 40 percent, like sure they can try to orange pill their vendors, but realistically, they're gonna have to be able to cash out. So that's that's the one thing I wanna be able to offer in Costa Rica. I wanna make it easy for expats to spend their Bitcoin in this country. That's that's the number one thing I, I, I want to do. Does that mean you and, need uh, I think what is gonna and if if so, I, like, I, I have banking relationships. Are they hard to come yeah. by? Like, yeah, why, yeah. why so, aren't there exchanges uh, there already? Nobody nobody cared enough about the size of the market, or so the bureaucracy is not insurmountable. I mean, I'm saying, yeah, like the, the the banking interests are allowing yeah. you know companies like yours to get set up. So, not not to get into too many uh, secret sauces or details, but just as a general principle. It helps to be underground and it helps to be hyper focused on one specific country and hustle your way through um, a bunch of connections. So I actually uh, pushed hard, I searched hard, I used uh, my time and some, some connections. I used local people to do some research and then I found um, a smaller partner that was willing to work with us. Uh, I was very motivated to get into the country here and I was on the ground and that helped. Totally. And also I think that when you are pitching to a potential partner, the fact that you are physically located here and that you express an interest, you know, my pitch is like, I want to help foreigners spend their money here. And that is a pitch that, you know, a Costa Rican company, financial company 
will will like very much right right because they know how hard it is to do that and you know costa ricans are also very patriotic people um so yeah and then uh other countries you know pretty much every country except the us and north korea is fair game for bull bitcoin um you know and iran obviously in like those you know forbidden countries uh bull bitcoin will never go to the us uh as long as i'm ceo for reasons that are that have to do with the fact that it scares the shit out of me as a country um there is no country in the world like the u.s where um you know if you if you do something wrong in the u.s like you failed to do one bit of compliance that you didn't know about or uh one of your clients turns out to you know maybe have been involved in some kind of terrorist organization at some point you're fucked you know you're, you're like they they will extradite you and put you in jail and they will lock you up and they will destroy your business or they will uh, a three-letter agency will contact you and say hey like we've got you like now you have to work for us and um you're gonna have to snitch on xxxx user or you have to do this and that like this stuff happens in the u.s you know uh, the story of charlie shrem which got jailed for failing to comply with money transmission licenses. Um, Arthur Hayes from BitMEX. Uh, so many stories of entrepreneurs that are just like, you know, dodging paperwork or not doing things according to book. They're just put in jail, you know, in Canada and other countries. If you, uh, if you slip up in terms of compliance accidentally, or even willfully, but let's say accidentally, um, usually you can correct the situation. You're, you're given an opportunity to correct the situation. In the mm -hmm. US, it's just like, immediately we got you, motherfucker, you're going to jail. Um, so, so that's really hard. So Costa Rica is the number one we're looking at. Uh, we're looking at Brazil. So we, we already have some um, uh, the necessary requirements uh, to set up in Brazil. Uh, we're looking at potentially Mexico, potentially Europe. Um, all of this would be within the next six months. That's what I've been working on. What? So... Uh, it's going to be, an, it's going to be, yeah. So Europe, Mexico, Brazil, and Costa Rica are the ones that I have immediately in my mind at the moment. And not just in my mind, like these what are the, mean the, next the countries six months, where like, like you'd actually be operating in that time frame, in those, in, in those jurisdictions. Don't want to make any promises, but yeah, I mean, um, we, we've been working on, on this international expansion for, uh, like a year. Um, the main roadblock actually is that bull Bitcoin was created and crafted specifically hard-coded for the Canadian dollar. Um, we did not have systems in place to, to handle different currency conversions, did not have any systems in place to onboard clients from other countries. Uh, so we decided to rewrite the entire bull Bitcoin. And then we had been building on top of legacy code for a while. So it's kind of like, you can imagine like a, a shaky kind of building they you know it's it's uh built on built on foundations that were not scalable essentially bull bitcoin as a technology platform was not scalable mm. so to add multiple different countries uh and currencies and multiple new different payment methods and banking system integrations on top of that infrastructure was just not feasible so we had to we're, we rewrote the entire exchange from scratch essentially over the last year and uh, we're almost done doing that. So once we've written the entire exchange from scratch, uh, especially after doing that, like staying in Canada only makes no sense because we've invested so much in this infrastructure. If I wanted to stay in Canada, we could have just coasted by on the same platform, and right. and you know, and we've been completely fine. Um, so yeah. So I mean, uh, next six months, next year for sure, definitely. 
Dude, that's so exciting. And uh, we're going to be going, yeah, country to country after that. So any country outside of uh, hostile territories um, is... Uh, is good to go. It's gonna be it's gonna be very challenging as a brand, um, just from like a from a business perspective. Because when you think about bull Bitcoin, you think about Canada, right? Everybody knows that bull Bitcoin is the Canadian Bitcoin company, and uh, it's very very much like cemented. I think in people's minds that we're uh, we're a Canadian company. So we're gonna have to to do a lot of work to spread that message out. But it's gonna be fun. <laughs> and then you know, managing teams in multiple Everybody at Bull Bitcoin is a French. Like every single employee at Bull Bitcoin is a French Canadian. And uh, I've had I've had other employees from other countries at some point, but that's not true. We have two. We have two Indian developers as well at the moment. But um, almost everybody at Bull Bitcoin is a is a French Canadian male. <laughs> like, so we have a very uh, homogeneous team. And now you know we're discussing with. Uh, uh, Latin speaking people, people that are in other time zones in Europe to do customer support for us. Uh, we have to recruit outside of our comfort zone. Uh, I've always recruited people that I personally knew. So almost everybody that works at Bull Bitcoin is a like, personal connection of mine. I, I actually have uh, childhood friends working at Bull Bitcoin. I have family members that are working at Bull Bitcoin. Um, I, I operate very much on a like, I need to know you and trust you personally uh, basis. And it's going to be fun. To have a, you know, international team, people in different countries. Uh, but I mean, there was a fork in the road for me as an entrepreneur, which was either I enter semi-retirement mode. You know, bull Bitcoin doesn't. I don't. I didn't need to to build all this infrastructure over the last year and a half. Bull Bitcoin's profitable. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're making profits. I mean, I can I, I can stop doing anything. I, I can I can literally spend three four hours a week on the phone with some of my key staff and the business would run perfectly fine, um, and then I would enter like semi-retired mode, or I like you know enter this this mindset of like fuck like I need bit bull, I need bull Bitcoin to become the standard like that is that is how I see it now it's like every people should be should be telling their local like why aren't you like bull bitcoin you know like how come you're not like bull bitcoin i know i know a lot of other exchanges want to be like us a lot of other exchanges talk to me guys that work there even their even their 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 executives even their founders some of them they're like i wish i wish we were a bit more like you you know um but we can't i'm like why not why don't you um so i want to have this i like my goal is for bitcoin to be the standard of excellence in bitcoin exchanges it's like the Swiss like watch of Bitcoin exchanges. It's just, it's, it's the engine. It runs so smoothly. It's like, maybe the marketing is not overwhelming. We're probably never going to be, you know, realistically, like it's not my style to like be this massive mainstream um, Coinbase style thing where it's, you know, I'm sponsoring stadiums or something like that. I'd, I think we're, we're always, our, our, our identity is going to be just like, the engine is just so smooth. It's just, it's just the, and, and people that appreciate like a good Bitcoin exchange, like if you, if you're a Bitcoin exchange connoisseur, you use both Bitcoin, like what I want is for you to be blown away and be like, holy fuck. Like, and you can even see a little bit how it works in the back end. you know, like those watches, the Swiss watches are transparent and they, they like to like show how the, the clockwork is like perfect. Like in both Bitcoin, I, I like to do that. I like to, to show some details of how it works in the back end. 
in the user interface. Um, so, so I hope I hope that this is what it's going to be, and I hope that people start demanding to their other because, like, you know, yeah, I hope people start demanding of their exchanges, like, so what's your coin join policy? You know, what what do you do for that? Mm -hmm. um, or how come I'm not getting my withdrawal right away? Like, what is that? You know, it's not it's not normal for you. It's it's not normal for me to have to provide a selfie before getting a Bitcoin withdrawal. That 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 that's weird. Like with bull Bitcoin, you just click on it and it's in your wallet right away. Like, why aren't you like them? And uh, so yeah, I hope to be lighting a fire under people's asses. And also, you know, we 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 have a lot of fans everywhere in the world that to just keep telling me like, ah oh, man, I wish you were, I wish you were there, I wish you were in my country. That's super gratifying. That's super nice. It's like people want me to come to their country. I'm not just the default choice. Well, you know, we use a, you know, for example, there's there's a. Uh, let's say that you're you're a Mexican citizen. Well, you know, we use the custodial shitcoin exchange because that's the big one that's here. You know, we that's just just the main one that works here. We don't want to use it, but it's the one that that people use here mm. because it's, it's just the default. So now, you know, ideally, um, they're going to be all of these radical Bitcoin maximalists, pleb people. Um, I'm going to be giving them the option to use us. And then that's my marketing strategy as an entrepreneur uh, has always been brand love. It, it is the only marketing strategy that we have. It's it's the experts and the, the radical people, they love us. They love our brand. And um, whenever someone asks like someone that's within our circle of people in the Bitcoin space. So I'm talking about Bitcoin Twitter, Bitcoin forums. Mm. Whenever someone asks a Canadian Bitcoin expert, um, like, who should I use? I mean, it's almost always full Bitcoin. It's so funny. I, uh, right? so, I, was in, I was in the lobby of the Adopting Bitcoin conference this year, like a few months ago. And um, I, was just, I just sat down and a guy sat down next to me. We started talking. He's from Canada, from Toronto. And, uh, anyways, I can't remember if I asked him or if he asked me and, uh, it came to light that he was using Kraken of all exchanges in Canada, which I couldn't understand at all. Because as you said, there's like, there's a lot of options in Canada. I don't know why, how you could end mm -hmm. up go And this was a, like a maximalist dude. And he was, he may have even connected with you. Um, I think he sent me a Twitter message after saying he met you. And cause I, my, my, you know, rebuttal to him was, why aren't you using bull Bitcoin? I mean, it's. It's the obvious choice if you're, you know, a Bitcoin only mm -hmm. person in Canada and, uh, mm -hmm. and he had, he hadn't even heard of it. And then I guess throughout the course of the conference, yeah, that, he either listened to you or talked to you and yeah. he sent me a message later and saying he's all set up and he's using bull Bitcoin now and he dropped Kraken. But, um, but yeah, to your point, yeah, I mean, yeah, people uh, that, that care about mm -hmm. these issues we've been discussing the last two hours, yeah. of course, of course they're going to yeah. direct people to that. And, you know, another thing that we touched on a while back is, I think it's a hallmark of being involved in Bitcoin and having it kind of upgrade or change your perspective on things that you like you're I talk about this a lot on other discussions, but like your your perception of value and what you value and what's important to you and the and the the importance of principles mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things tend to become elevated and restructured in the minds mm -hmm. of people that really go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And what that translates yep. to as far as like a market and businesses are concerned is you end up having higher standards. Like you want to do business with people yeah. that reflect those principles and values more. You're more stringent about yeah. that. And, you know, I think that's brilliant yeah. because if you hold true to those things that you, you have throughout the course of your business thus far, those people will by default wind up on your, you know, 
front, so-called front doorstep because it'll be evident yeah. that uh, those principles are reflected in what you're doing. And that's, and they, they won't yeah. want to do business with anybody else. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And what you, what you said, just just because I, I know your podcast is also like a lot about like business and talking to entrepreneurs. And this is like the the thing that we've been very bad at is marketing. So marketing ourselves, what we're really good at is our inf our infrastructure. Sure. You know, so my, my goal has always been, but now at this point, like what we've been working on is like the infrastructure is good. Our infrastructure is pretty much good forever. So now it's, it's, we, I am entering a phase of my life where I'm like, okay, I want, I don't, I don't want to cater just to the, to the experts anymore. You know, I want, I want everybody to be using, to, to be using bowl and uh, we're making it so that, I, so that's possible. So it's very, very, very interesting. So my life, yeah, I was, uh, I was at a fork in the road and then, um, I would say that it wasn't it wasn't really FTX and BlockFi that motivated me that much. I mean, the thing that motivated me the most actually is the is the uh, the lockdown. So before the lockdown, before COVID and all of that, I was uh, I closed I closed the Bitcoin office in January 2020. So uh, before we heard about COVID, mm -hmm. I had to close the office, and then I was I was I was feeling a lot of fatigue uh for having worked in bitcoin for fucking like seven years right so in 2020 i was i was just entering my seventh year of bitcoin and uh i had decided to move to bali uh in early 2020 and um learn how to surf or get better at surf live on the beach and um and semi-retire Right. I was already like in, I was in semi-retirement mindset. I'm, you know, it's, 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 I was just very, I was just burnt out. Right. I'm 33. So I shouldn't retire. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but, but at that time I was like, I, I want to do, I, I think, I think I may want to do something other than Bitcoin. You know, I'm burnt out from Bitcoin. I'm fucking tired of Bitcoin. It's like Bitcoin's my entire life. And you know, it's, it's taken a lot from me. Mm -hmm. It's given a lot, but Bitcoin has taken a lot from me, relationships, energy, uh, and so on and so forth. Or I, I've given a lot to Bitcoin. Now I'm, now I'm way, way better at managing different parts of my life. But for a long, long time, Bitcoin was like 90% of my life. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then the lockdowns happened. And then I went, you know, I, and I, I really, my, 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 my love for freedom translated into a very strong, I don't want to use the word hate. I'm trying not to use the word hate too much these days, but into a very strong hate for the I'll just say for the state, um, yeah. and and a a a need which you know if the the fuel was a kind of sentiment that I wanted revenge. I wanted justice, but if I'm being perfectly honest, I wanted revenge for how they fucked up my life, and how they fucked up everything, and how they how they fucked up future generations, and then you know. Like I, and we've had this discussion before, um, you know, on another podcast on the remnant episode, um, I took it very, very personally. Like I took this assault on my freedom extremely personally. And now, and I was like, oh my God, like no matter, and then no matter where you go, because the, the COVID policies were being enforced in Indonesia, you know, and mm. Indonesia was, uh, that's where I want to go was specifically bad. There's there's no jurisdictional arbitrage. There, there's no jurisdictional arbitrage. There's nowhere we can go at this mm. point. You know, you cannot run away from tyranny. Uh, I went, I went to Alberta, and I thought, okay, you know, we'll just 
I'll just rent a cottage in the in the, the Rockies and I'll just go off the grid. And, you know, I thought about buying a wrench and I was like, fuck, I'll just do a Bison wrench and go off the grid. And then, all right, now you need the vaccine passports to do this or that. And that's also that's And I was like, wow, there's there's really no choice. Like we have to have this confrontation, you know, opt opting out and um, opting out and letting it blow over. Uh, it's just it's just letting the letting the state self-destruct uh it's not gonna ha it's not gonna work because they're actively attacking us as individuals and they're affecting my life on a very very personal basis you know they're breaking relationships they're they're removed and you know I, I can handle the removal of freedoms in the sense of like having a passport or things like this but you know when when they stop me from going to the gym you know that became very very personal to me especially at a time where I was you know getting back into my health and back into going to the gym every single day. And I was very focused on that, had a very, very good routine, you know, and now they fucked everything up. So, so that was like the fork in the road where I decided to go all in again on Bitcoin. Um, and, and, uh, I decided to, and actually I decided to go, I was hesitating on whether or not I would take bull Bitcoin international, because that means a significant change in my, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I've never been this busy. I, I, yes, I've, uh, I've, tra I travel and I have, you know, a, pr a pretty good surfer lifestyle, but, uh, taking on all of this stuff means, you know, a, a different change of pace. Mm -hmm. It really was at Miami 2021. And, you know, we have a, a person that we know in common, Madex. Some people know him as Spaceball on Twitter. And I was, uh, I was, um, uh, with him during that time. We were singing the same Airbnb. And we were just observing the the kind of like clown show that is the Miami Bitcoin conference uh, with all these people that suck. And we were very, very unimpressed uh, compared to other, you know, you know, Bitcoin conferences or other Bitcoin builders that we know about. And uh, yeah, I just decided he, you know, we were talking about greatness and purpose of life and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, the idea of like, yeah, like creates create something that is uh that is truly great is uh, is what i want to do getting me jacked up man i, I love to hear uh i love to hear <laughs> that stuff you know that your energy is refocused and that you're back in the game mm -hmm. uh so to speak and you know i agree i think anyone who's i've often framed it and and it's, the last few years have been uh a huge example of this because a lot of people have taken the so-called red pill now right like they're waking up and being like holy shit, like things are way more messed up than I had thought, you know? Um, but if you just only take the red pill, things get dark, you're not happy, things aren't great, you know? Mm -hmm. If you're only seeing how messed up and corrupt and incompetent and whatever things are, that's not a good place to be. And you feel like just opting out. You go, going to some enclave like Bali, like, like Thailand, like wherever. Um, but if you take the orange pill as a chaser after you take the red pill... Then I, th I think that, I mean, mm -hmm. as it's often said, you know, Bitcoin is hope. But I think what that translates to is you now, your mindset shifts from opting out as like a final thing to opting into what Bitcoin is emerging as. And you want to yeah. contribute to that. You want to, you know, create, you want to avail of it. And so rather than like that, what I think is probably kind of a unproductive attitude of, of withdrawing from everything, it's now you want to give your energy to actually building 
what you believe to be the most promising solution to all the fuckery that you're now seeing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yep. my impression is that that is what animates and um, energizes a lot of Bitcoiners in that, like, again, and all these little pockets like Bitcoin uh, jungle is that. And, you know, doing mm-hmm. you don't have to be in a, a specific place, but it's just the attitude that the goal here is to build something better in parallel so that more and more people opt into it. And I, you know, I say often that I think that the most compelling case is most people aren't going to give a shit about, you know, monetary history or economics or all this kind of stuff ultimately, but they will care about having a better life, about having more freedom, about having Mm -hmm. more wealth, about having more options, about having, you know, all of that kind of stuff, because that's what everyone wants in life. And if our premise is correct, that, that sound money is what is, is, is the biggest, you know, thing responsible for generating that, then we should have faith that that's going to happen automatically if we just do our, you know, pursue our, our responsibility, which is one, engaging in this thing and availing of its benefits for yeah. ourselves. And then to the extent that we're motivated to do more than that, push it out into the world in whatever capacity we feel most drawn to, whether it's being an entrepreneur or a content creator or, you know, artist or contributing in some way. And that's what makes, that's what makes, gives that parallel system the allure it makes it attractive for all manner of people. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and that's a way more happy thing, for lack of a better term, to be doing, to be building something good, like capital G good. There's nothing more energizing yeah. than that. There's, you know, coherent with those broader metaphysical concepts that we sometimes del- delve into. There's nothing more seemingly relevant than doing that. And uh, yeah. yeah, to hear that, yeah, yeah. that you've been re-energized and, and you're, you're putting your focus on that is makes me happy yeah and um i've actually seen that firsthand from from my cousin so my cousin was a was a banker and um i saw him take the the uh the red pill and the orange pill in the last two years uh you know like like a lot of people he um you know the lockdown was was not an easy part and you know now he works at bull bitcoin and um seeing the transformation in him is, is just f- fantastic and great. Um, so that, that was a, a, a recent, uh, you know, um, so he, you know, and he's, he might hear this, so, you know, don't, don't take this the wrong way, man, <laughs> but he was kind of a normie, you know, he was kind of a normie. He took the red pill. Um, and then, uh, even he, he tells me his friends don't recognize him now. Mm. Uh, he's now imbued with a, you know, full sense of purpose and mission, which is the bull Bitcoin mission. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, on a final note, like that's one of the things that I've done actually in the last, in the last year was, uh, I created, um, a kind of community of bull Bitcoin fans and I called it the mission. And I just realized like so many people are looking for an outlet totally for, and not and a creative outlet. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And something that actually works, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of people will, you know, and I want to, ex- I don't want to extend because we could talk a lot about this, but just on, on a final note, maybe, or a final ish, um, <laughs> the, the big red pill, I think for a lot of people was the disillusionment in democracy, that democracy does not work, that no matter who you vote for, the result is the lockdown. No matter what country you go to, the result is the lockdown. No matter the protest, or no matter how unpopular it is, the result is still and always a lockdown. And not only that, but the lockdown government gets reelected with a majority. You know, in a lot of countries, in mm-hmm. most countries, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and you know you go to the protests and then you think you're about to do a revolution and then you're surrounded by 150,000 people in a city like Ottawa or Montreal and then it changes absolutely sweet fuck all you know um in Quebec not they there was a recent election and then there was one anti-lockdown party which got a lot of traction and they got 13% of the vote and 0% of the seats in parliament and the lockdown government got reelected with the historic majority i think never seen before majority crazy and you know you have like 20 25% of the population that was severely against the lockdown like radically against the lockdown and you look at this and you're like there's absolutely nothing we could have done more we voted as hard as we could we lobbied as hard we posted on social media we protested in the streets we broke the the rules you know we went to these illegal gatherings we did everything that we could have done so there's nothing that, like you know for a lot of people they must be thinking like you know the only other thing we can do is fucking you know do something violent yeah i think i think a, lo a lot of people are thinking like this you know and then when you're working in bitcoin you you're looking at it and you're like okay this thing actually works it actually the government cannot stop this so it's one of the it's one of the few things that you can commit your time and energy to that not i mean in my mind it, it has a certainty of success there's there's you know it's not that we don't have to work but this success the success is is our destiny it's not it's not that it's guaranteed it's just our destiny to succeed mm -hmm. and it's basically ours to fuck up at this point um but for a lot of people that are not as certain you know at least it's there's like tangible things that you can do that have a concrete impact like building a bitcoin project like working for a bitcoin company like orange pilling your your community um it's like a little it's like little acts of sabotage you know bull bitcoin uh, not just bitcoin generally it's like it's like you're sabotaging the state's ability to control people's freedoms to finance itself uh, through little acts you know orange pilling a vendor and paying them in bitcoin is effectively a small act of sabotage against yeah. the state well um, it feels great Pe people you know <laughs> once once you once you put yourself in that mindset it's fun <laughs> you know to do that yeah and it's constructive and it's positive and uh, we've passed a point where people are are going to uh, there's not going to be an armed revolution against the government like that's just if it was going to happen it would have happened in 2021 when they did the vaccine mandates right so but even right, if it so had it would have been just, ultimately ineffective because there's nothing materially different yeah. to replace it i mean that's the story of history right Th th this will be my yeah. last comment because i'm seeing the sunset behind you i'm feeling guilty yeah. for making you miss it but um <laughs> you know yeah. i think this is what gives so many people hope because one you look at history and you realize it's just rinse and repeat the, you know, the revolutionary cycle, basically mm -hmm. nothing, nothing really fundamentally changes. And Bitcoin, one of its, you know, one of the things that's beautiful about it amongst many things is that it's a peaceful res revolution. And like, I, it's, mm -hmm. for me, it's too early to tell like what governance looks like in 50 years on a Bitcoin standard. All I know is that if the capacity for whatever system of governance, whatever model, whatever is not no longer predicated on the, uh, easy ability to siphon wealth from people and therefore, you know, dramatically tip the scales in an unfair direction for, you know, the, the government over the governed, then that's like the best you can hope for. And that's And in terms of the, the type of property that Bitcoin represents, it represents a completely novel opportunity to do that, like on a completely different scale. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so it reminds mm-hmm. me of the, the Bucky Filler, uh, Buckminster Fuller quote, you know, everything we've been discussing today is, you know, don't rail against the thing you hate or the thing you're opposed to build solutions that make them obsolete. And that's basically what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. That's what these, you know, these adoption yeah. products are. It's like, don't use their money. Don't allow, you know, yeah. um, their, uh, their prying eyes to, to, watch everything and to, as a result, censor and steal and coerce, et cetera. And I think that's basically what Bitcoin mm-hmm. represents. I mean, it's another thing people have alluded to is, you know, Galt's Gulch, right? You just, you just, that system, you make it, you make yourself as impervious to it as you can. And as a result of more and more people mm-hmm. doing that, you make it irrelevant while you're simultaneously starving it of, starving it of its means to uh, exist, at least exist in the form that it has up to this point. And then we'll see, you know, there's, there's probably lots to be determined. There's lots of, you know, thinking and negotiating to be had about what, again, what governance looks like in 50 years. But I think as a base premise, uh, not allowing the monopoly on violence to so easily steal from people and therefore enshrine and, and cement its position there in perpetuity is a damn fine start. And, as you said, we no longer have to do it with pitchforks. We can do it with 12 words. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. The most revolutionary thing I can do is put Bitcoin in the hands of someone. 100%. And here you are doing mm-hmm. it. All right. Uh, again, guilty about the making you miss the sunset. So I'm going to let you go. But as always, man, it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a pleasure. And I appreciate your perspective. And I also, like I opened this up with, I appreciate how you've maintained a principled um, approach to all this when you've been in a sea of dangling carrots for the last 10 years. I mean, you've, you've been Mm -hmm. exposed to it all and you could have done all the shitty scams that everyone has done 10 times over and, you know, basically be a billionaire by now, but you've recognized the Mm -hmm. importance of certain values and principles and you've, you know, had the discipline and the, the faith, the belief, the reverence, whatever you want to call it, to maintain them. And that's a very rare thing. And I commend you for it and uh, appreciate the time today. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate that. All right, brother. Take care. Hope you enjoyed this discussion with Francis. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at Francis Pouliot underscore F-R-A-N-C-I-S-P-O-U-L-I-O-T underscore and visit bullbitcoin.com to learn more about their awesome service and to stay informed on their upcoming expansion plans. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop and we'll see you next time.